It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. I want to update you a little bit on uh, some of what we're learning. A former finance director at OceanGate, the company that launched this uh, submersible, the Titan, said that the CEO told her she should take on the role of chief submersible pilot. And that was a job offer that led to her quitting since her background is in accounting. I mean, the more we learn about what was going on at this company and with this vessel, the more we learn that this was an accident waiting to happen. After firing the submersible's head pilot, David Lockridge, the CEO, Stockton Rush, asked the company's director of finance and administration to take on the role. That's what uh, that's what she told the New Yorker's Ben Taub. Lockridge warned others at the company about quality control and safety problems as far back as 2018. But when he raised the issues with Stockton Rush, he was apparently wrongfully terminated. At least that's uh, the word in a new lawsuit. OceanGate gave Lockridge, the pilot that warned everybody that things were not not okay. He gave Lockridge approximately 10 minutes to immediately clear out his desk and exit the premises. That's what his attorneys are saying in this filing. The paying passengers would not be aware and would not be informed of this experimental design, the lack of non-destructive testing of the hull, or that hazardous flammable materials were being used within the submersible. After this fellow was fired, Rush asked the company's finance director if she would like to take on the role. Now, imagine that. Here's basically an accountant, and the CEO says, hey, you want to go take over the uh, the role of piloting this? I mean, what could go wrong? Wisely, I think she declined, but it's a shame that with all these warning signs that these people were very much in jeopardy, very much in harm's way aboard this vessel. I also wonder if any of these victims' families may have a lawsuit themselves against OceanGate. I think they might. They ignored warning after warning. And you have a situation where clearly the vessel was not up to snuff and you got all sorts of other warnings about what was going on here that uh, internally that should have been a red flag for everybody. So the other news is that uh, a physicist took the time to explain how the catastrophic implosion happened and what it meant for those on board. The uh, the Titan that garnered, obviously, worldwide attention, it experienced what they're calling a catastrophic implosion. That's according to the Coast Guard. And the result, authorities said, is that the five occupants on board are presumed to have died during the implosion. So how does an implosion happen and what kind of impact would it have had on the Titan's crew? They the, This news outlet, Northeastern Global News, reached out to Aaron Bansill, a university professor of physics, to provide kind of an overview of the physics involved here. And this implosion is, again, I don't know anything about this stuff, so I'm only going by what this physicist has said and what others have said. The An implosion is the opposite of an explosion. The force acts outwards, but in an implosion, the force acts inwards. 
And when a submersible is deep in the ocean, it experiences the force on its surface because of water pressure. And when that force becomes larger than the force that the hull can withstand, the vessel implodes violently. And like explosions, implosions are very violent. The hull breaks apart under the huge external pressure. A large amount of energy is released, and the five occupants would have died instantly. They would not have experienced pain or probably even realize what hit them. So thank goodness for that. If you want to comment on the uh, news that's coming out about the Titan, you're welcome to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And the Titan submersible, we just learned yesterday, had an issue with its thrusters and was spinning in circles on a dive last year. And the moment which was captured by the BBC, occurred less than a 1,000 feet from the Titanic. The sub-pilot said the thrusters were thrusting in opposite directions. The, the point is here, there was just warning sign after warning sign that this vessel was not ready to be in the water doing what it was doing. And yet, I think primarily because of greed, this company kept taking people's money and then taking them down to the Titanic. Well, I mean, I hope, one, this is a lesson for any other company that does anything like this. Who knows how many other high-end luxury tourist sightings there are like this. But also, I really hope there are some repercussions for this company. I realize the CEO has paid the ultimate price. He's died. But I hope there's some repercussions in terms of not allowing them to get away with this as a company. I think there's got to be some financial penalties, maybe even criminal penalties. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. The one piece of misinformation that I want to correct is uh, that videos purporting to reveal audio footage of the Titan submersible imploding and screams from within the vessel have proliferated across social media uh, in the last couple of days. The worst of it has been on TikTok, and it's prompting concerns about the spread of disinformation related to this horrible tragedy. And while a U.S. Navy official said after the search and rescue operation had uncovered the submersible's debris that a top-secret detection system had heard an anomaly around the time that it was thought to have imploded, that recording has not been made public. So these fact-checking websites have said videos claiming to be of knock, knocking sounds detected while the vessel was still missing. They've been shared on Facebook and Twitter as well, and those are apparently fraudulent too. So it's not clear what steps, if any, TikTok has taken to limit the spread of such videos, but they're out there. If someone sends you a video uh, via email or via social media or text message that says, this is the final few moments of the Titan don't buy it. It's simply not the case. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Hey, very excited. In about 10 minutes, we're going to talk with uh, the one and only Richard Bay. I love Richard Bay. He's one of the greatest communicators I've ever I've ever known. He's a close friend of mine. And uh, whenever he's willing to come in studio with us, we are going to take advantage of that. So we're going to pick his brain on a bunch of things. And he's willing to take calls from a lot of you who may not even agree with him. On, uh, on anything, and that's what I like about Richard. He's willing to deal with issues and be challenged on issues in a respectful way, in a civil way, and in a courteous manner. So we appreciate you extending the same 
courtesy. 800-848-9222. Steve in Brooklyn. Thoughts on the Titan. Hello. Yeah, um, it would be comforting to us to believe that it was instantaneous and that they would felt no pain. However, anybody that's ridden in an elevator or in a plane and you feel the air pressure going gradually increasing in your ear, they were down 5,500 feet, which means over a mile of water above. The pressure on their ears would have been immense. Also, they had no toilets on board. And it took two and a half hours to go down and up. And we know that many mariners can get the bends before they come from the bottom of the ocean back up or going downward. Um, I, I think many of the reports sound like they are a little overly sanitized. Well, why, why though? Why would they be? Who are they? Who are they protecting? Why would they be? Why would they p- be putting out something that's false? Maybe for all we know, there are insurance reasons financial reasons for lawsuits that are going to come. Who knows? There could be endless, endless array of reasons why we would be getting false information. But from the standpoint of um, oceanic physics, fluid dynamics, and so forth, um, they built the whole thing out of newer carbon fibers. Now, the uh, carbon fibers mixed with metal, but the whole point of the design of many of those carbon fiber and metal, metal things is for lightweight, for the, for the wings on planes, to make them lighter, use less fuel. But if you're using them in submersibles, they're not built the way the old bathyscaphe was, which was out of solid, solid iron. These submersibles are small. It was just a cylinder. They were, they were like in a, um, essentially a, a, a tablet, a gel tab. That was the shape of this submersible. And Steve, just so folks know, what's your background? You obviously seem like you know what you're talking about here. I have studied a fair amount of science, yes. Okay. Steve, thank you for that. 800-848-9222. I don't buy that they would be sanitizing this story either to spare people's feelings or because or to avoid a lawsuit. Because, look, I think if there's going to be a lawsuit, the fact that they died in two seconds rather than in three minutes, I don't think that does anything to limit their damages as a company. I don't buy that. That guy obviously was much more well-versed than I am in oceanic physics and the like. Not buying it. 800-848-9222. William is in Manhattan. William, give me your thoughts on the Titan. I, I'm going to give it to you, Frank. Happy belated 4th of July. The only way I would go down in the uh, – Carmine would not even go down <laughs> in there. He would have common sense. But only way I would go down is with Sade Veteran while Laurie Stokes, Dana Tyler, <laughs> or Pat Battle. <laughs> I believe that alone. Uh, we're going to put this on Saturday Night Live. It's not even funny. Have a wonderful one. I'm, I'm out of here. Thank you, William. 800-848-9222. You know, to his point, uh, aside from the joke about wanting to go on a sub – with a bunch of beautiful women, I, I think he's right. I mean, I wouldn't have gone on this this boat I mean, or submersible, whatever, whatever it is. I mean, it's just I don't know what the appeal was. There's some great photos online that you can get a really great look at the Titanic wreckage. What do you really gain by spending a couple hours going down to the site and staring out of a porthole? I mean, with all these safety concerns and something that's piloted by a video game controller, I don't, uh, uh, it's not something that would appeal to me. 800-848-9222. Peter is in Boston. Hello, Peter. Hey, Frank, how are you? Um, um, not bad. Very, Thank you. Very quick.
quickly, a lot of what you said is, is quite accurate. The previous caller, with all due respect, is, is way, way off. The short version is these guys are down about 12.5 K feet, 12,500 feet. The pressure is, you know, in the nominally 5,000 PSI. An implosion like this does away with anything inside the pressure housing very, very quickly, a couple few milliseconds at the most. You don't spring leaks. You just, as you said, you catastrophically go away. That's thing one. Thing two, I believe you said earlier, they didn't do the NDT, the non-destructive testing, because it costs money. And they were doing, I think, acoustic sensing of stress and strain in the hull, which is great. But by the time you hear it, you're already gone, right? Um, because you're dealing with huge forces at that depth. Mm. Uh, it's also the case that, I mean, again, as you say, any any video that says that there was noise or screaming, this is absolutely, completely fraudulent. Yeah, no, I know that, but I want people who might get sent this by a friend or a family member to know that it's yeah. bogus. Yeah, no, very well said. I mean, the last thing that I will say when you said that, you know, suffer repercussions, of course, these guys are not bad enough to be irresponsible, if you understand what I'm saying, and I know you do. I would simply say that at the end of the day, this is not even a shoestring operation. And uh, these guys were hustling to make money, and they were risking lives, including the, the guy that ran it, who was probably fooling himself, and that's why this happened. So this was done purely, this was totally greed-based. Well, no, what I mean, I, to be explicit, I mean, obviously they were providing, you know, this kind of adventure tourism or whatever you term it. But what I am saying is I believe you, you probably saw the video where there was a father-son in Vegas and they were offered the tickets ultimately taken by, I'm sorry, the, is it Dawood, the Pakistani fellow? Yes, British correct. Pakistani fellow. And they were offered a discount. Now, when somebody offers you a discount, of course, what you think to yourself is, gee, I guess they don't have a waiting list. You know, it's and funny. Um, I have a friend who was a radio talk show host in New York, and yes. then he started doing a show in Boston, actually. And yeah. I used to listen to a show in Boston because a big friend, a big fan is. Was this Jay? Oh, it was actually, yeah. 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 So, um, so he, you know, we would talk. He would go down to Boston, I think, once in a while to do his show. I don't remember. This was, you know, almost uh, twenty years ago. But he, um, uh, there was back then a Chinatown to Chinatown bus that would take you. I don't remember the 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 it line. Was, it was called. It was called Feng Wa. Right, but so for people that may not be familiar with it, it would take you from Chinatown in Manhattan to Chinatown in Boston for ten dollars ten dollars yeah. and jay said there's no way i am getting on that bus because if they are traveling all that distance from new york to boston and they're only charging ten dollars for it you know they're not exactly uh they're not exactly buttoned up when it comes to things like safety and precautions and it turned out he was right there was issue after issue accident after accident people actually lost their lives and i think they shut those buses down at least as they were in that form peter I used to stop in front of a Chinese restaurant I patronized, and occasionally on my way to New York, I get to Manhattan frequently. Uh, I would see them on 95, and let's just say that the driving was uh, less something to be desired. But look, all I was going to say is that, you know, I think, again, this is something I have experience with. That is, I am not a submersible builder, 
but I built a lot of underwater gear. And when you look at the facilities or lack thereof, and at the the launching gear and trailers and what have you, uh, you can't do this kind of thing at that depth and stay safe in simple terms. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is that long, long ago when I first moved to Boston, having been born in Washington Heights, there were some guys in Boston and they wanted to go live at the bottom of the harbor. And I said, oh, well, yeah, I guess. And they thought it was going to be like Sea Lab. And, you know, they were young guys and they were very enthusiastic and they were going to get old oil, fuel oil tanks and they were going to clean them and put portholes. I mean, all this kind of stuff, which is basically what, like the kind of uh, scribblings that a, that a sixth grader would do in the back of a notebook back when there were notebooks. And, uh, and that's kind of what this was, which is to say between the PlayStation controller and again, I don't want to go into details because I'll triangulate myself, but this is not, this is not, this is really, really bad. Yeah. And it's sad that the people who, who bought these tickets were, you know, Hey, it's cool. We're going to go to the Titanic. And if they had been technically a little more knowledgeable, they would have run in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's for sure. Hey, Peter, great call. Call again, please. Thank you. We're squeezing one more call, uh, ideally another Pete, because we had such good luck with that previous Pete. And then for those of you that are holding, you're welcome to hold or uh, or stay on when Richard Bay gets here in a minute. Pete is in Jersey City. Hello, Pete. Uh, it's actually Steve. Ah, I'm sorry, Frank. Sorry. No, that's okay. We got a lot. You got a lot going on. That's it. You know, uh, I heard you say uh, a caller or two ago that you don't buy the fact that they sanitized the story, but you bought the fact that the the sub was already destroyed and they were dead and the Navy was still searching for them and they were still claiming they were alive. So it's like, you know, I mean, I don't trust anything the media says now, that's, or anything. Yeah, that's a fair point. The authorities have uh, definitely earned the right to public skepticism, have they not? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you know, the reputation precedes them. That's all. I, that's all I have to say. Fair enough. Every time, I, every time I hear a story, it's like, okay, so you don't buy this, but you bought that. Yeah, I, you know I, I get it. I get it, Steve. Steve, thanks for calling. Richard Bay is here. Very excited to talk with him. Going to pick his brain on the news of the day and a bunch of other issues as well. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Out where a friend is a friend 
Where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly Jimson weed. Back in the saddle again. Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, singing about being back in the saddle. Well, back in the talk show saddle, we have the singing talk show host. Very pleased to be joined in studio by a longtime friend of mine, veteran TV and radio talk show host, who's now hosting the aptly titled Richard Bay Talk Podcast. So what should I do, sing the Sondheim song? I'm still here. (laughs) I'm still here. Bad times and good times and the ABC WWRL Sirius XM. I'm still here. Well, I'm here for a short while anyway. It's great to have you back, uh, Richard. Okay. It's good to see you. You look terrific. Well, thank you. You look good too. A little sunburned around. Uh, the, well, uh, it happens. I, uh, I that's one aspect of um, the the Italian genes that I never got is just getting olive skin. I, I tend to get burned. I tend to get red. Well, all right. So earlier on, um, one of your astute listeners, a guy named Jeff Schilling suggested that we talk about theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but we could go directly to uh, Blood in the Water and feed the piranhas, uh, we'll, if you want. We'll cover as much ground as we can. Well, but, let me ask you on, well, yeah. maybe this is a polarizing hot-button issue that is even more dividing than affirmative action and abortion and gun control all combined. Fireworks. These fireworks, mm-hmm. I have to tell you, the, in my neighborhood, they were firing them off at 11.30, 12 o'clock at night. Now, I think anybody that has a child or a pet is pretty frustrated by this. There seemed to be very little enforcement. I tweeted about it, and it was the case uh, evidently in city after city. Just fireworks. People felt like they were in Fallujah, and there doesn't seem to be any concerted effort to shut them down. Where are you on fireworks? Well, I I, I heard an, a very interesting statement on this subject, and uh, the person <laughs> said, if they're if they try to take away my fireworks, <laughs> they'll have to pry them out of my cold dead hands. And my cold dead hands, they're over there on the other side of the sidewalk. <laughs> Blow, blown off with an M80, no right, doubt. Right, right. But do you like fireworks? I have to be honest, uh, I don't get it. I've, uh, I, my friend lives, uh, you know, across the river, and he's got a high floor, and he said, come on over, you could watch the... I've seen so many right. fireworks. I mean, so how many years have I seen fireworks? And... What there's not a big difference between you know what I would like to see some places now are not using fireworks they're using drones right those look pretty neat and you know what I would like to see that same. because I've never seen that yeah same exactly there's some novelty to it now you uh, grew up in New York lived in New York for many years now you're living in Florida one thing you're going to have to straighten me out on is there seems to be this huge rivalry among Floridians. The East Coast Floridians versus the West Coast Floridians. <laughs> you hear the East Coasters talk about the West Coasters. It's it's like they describing the Hatfields and McCoys. Now, for those of us that don't live in Florida, to us, it's it's like that Star Trek episode where the guy who's black on the right side and white on the left side hates the guy that's black on the on the other side of the face. But to us, it's all the same. What is the cultural difference between East Coast and West Coast? I really I, I can't t- tell you. One way or the other, I can tell you the cultural difference between the panhandle and certain uh, counties in okay. Florida. Yeah. But, you know, you know, there the the east coast of Florida, though, is uh, has a large proportion of transplanted New Yorkers. So maybe that's part of it. But really, I'm not aware of it. What I'm aware of is the is the disparity between those people who love DeSantis and Trump 
and the the ever shrinking sort of liberal uh, const- uh, constituency in Florida that's feeling more like the Alamo with Santa <laughs> Ana. Needless, needless to say, you're not in the DeSantis slash Trump fan club. Oh. Is your area very conservative where where you live? Or I'll just tell you this: I come to I I, I fly up to New York maybe every six weeks uh, or so. I was just here at the beginning of June and I came back. I come here for sanity. Mm-hmm. The last time I came back, uh, you know, to the place where I live, I went to get my mail and there was a a very nice looking woman there in her thirties and her dog. And we started talking, and she said, oh, you seem very bright. What did you do for a living? And I said, oh, I worked on talk radio. And she says, oh, did you know that? I said, yeah, I, I knew Sean Hannity. I shared the studio with him. And so she said, oh, I love that blonde woman who's on the radio. I said, who? And she goes, you know, the one that outed Michelle Obama. And I said, outed Michelle Obama? She says, yeah, she proved that she was a transsexual. Oh. And now everybody knows it. I said, what are you talking about? They have two kids. I read her her autobiography. She grew up as a girl. She went to college. Her best friend was a woman. I, I, and I said, I said, you probably believe that Trump won by 7 million votes. And she said, of course he did. Uh, you know, putting aside the election thing, the transsexual thing is uh, something I just don't understand. Somebody, somebody called me the other day on that, and I asked him to explain that same thing. Where did these two kids came from? And the guy said something. In fact, see, that's the real scandal. That's what you're going to figure out. It just amazes me what people will Well, did you uh, see the DeSantis ad? Yeah, I, I heard about oh it. I didn't watch it. Oh, my God. I didn't watch oh. it. Oh my God! So it's uh, it's kind of describe it for folks. All right. Well, it. it starts off as an anti-Trump ad, and it it has pictures of transsexuals or drag queens, and then you have Trump saying, "Well, he's being asked if if Caitlyn, Caitlyn Jenner, Jenner came to Trump Tower, right. would you let her use the uh, women's restroom?" And he said, "Sure, I have no problem with that." Right. And then another one, he said, uh, "I'll be the best friend the gays ever had," and then he says. Uh, uh, transsexuals don't bother me, or uh, and then it goes into Montesantis, <laughs> just comic book territory. There, it looks like the second part of it was designed by Tom of Finland, who does homoerotic. Oh boy, it's it's muscle men with their bare chest and their muscles sticking out. And it's uh, Brad Pitt wearing a a, 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 a a Greek helmet in the uh, Trojan War, and it's it's all these symbols of masculinity that are sort of like macho macho man. Trump plays macho man, right? Right. right. Things, right? And it, it's sort of a parody of masculinity. It's a caricature of masculinity. And uh, even the log cabin Republicans have come out and yeah, said, I've heard it almost universally condemned. So I guess the implication is that Trump is pro transgender. Is that the implication? Well, of the and end? that Ron DeSantis is a real yeah, man. Boy, he's a he's a he's the Marlboro man. Oh, <laughs> my goodness! Hey, uh, you alluded to that conversation with uh, that woman whose interest was piqued when you mentioned your career in talk radio. I'm going to pose a question to you that I get asked a lot, and you've probably thought about this for literally decades. You've uh, worked at uh, conservative outlets. You've worked at liberal outlets. The question I get asked so often is why is talk radio so dominated traditionally by 
conservatives, political talk. I mean, obviously, there are some left of center voices, people like Tom Hartman and others. But for the most part, if you turn to a commercial station, a talk station in this country, 80 to 90 percent of what you're going to hear is conservative. Why do you think that's the case? I think it's because liberals listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. Liberals want they don't want to hear slogans. They don't want to hear generalizations. They want to hear something that has uh, background information that has factual that's uh, more in depth and and subtle. I mean, I listen in Florida. There's only one station that I can pick up. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now, but they have a, a they have a woman on Joyce Kaufman who's mm. right wing, followed by Don ben, Bongino, followed by Ben Shapiro. Hello, this is Ben Shapiro. I'm telling you right now, the Biden said the Biden crime family, and then they're all going to go to jail. And I'm telling you right now. I mean, this guy I don't think it's fast enough, actually. <laughs> right. I know. But he sounds like an auctioneer who went to his kid's birthday party and sucked helium out right. of a balloon. It's true. It's he, true. That guy has a voice for radio. Uh, it's beyond me. I don't, I don't get it. But so uh, honestly, it's the the fact that people that are left of center have other listening options is that well, what you're and they of? read books and they well come on conservative free yeah but when you're in the car which is generally when you're listening to talk radio um you know you're distracted but you're paying attention to the traffic you're hearing horns blaring and it's it's not a medium for subtlety mm-hmm. except possibly at late night yeah like see this, there right? you go maybe we can get remember away with in more the old days we used to have uh who was it? Uh, Long John Nebel and Barry Gray. Mm-hmm. Over my grandmother used to go to sleep listening to them. And when I grew up, I remember MCA where they had Leon Lewis, Malachi McCourt, Bob Grant. Um, yeah, Barry Farber was on there for a time, Barry, and sports shows like guys like John Sterling, yeah, Alex Bennett, but, but, obviously, uh, yeah. But you, you know, and especially these days, people want it fast. They want it simple. They want it. Direct. It's sort of like a, a television commercial. They don't want something that's, you know, even in their news these days. Most people, and whether and that's true of of MSNBC or Fox News or Newsmax or whatever, they don't want the, the subtle delineations between things. They don't want to necessarily understand the background of something you know if people just tuning in richard bay is here you could check out his podcast which is quite good irrespective of what your politics might be it's very informative very entertaining uh just go to richard bay talk on youtube Can I just say something yeah please on last week's podcast i had a segment where lynn samuels was on and irv homer who was the premier talk show host from philly and the next time, I'm going to put out together a montage of Bob Grant. Oh, terrific. They, and some of the topics were, should we ban communism in the United States? Mm-hmm. That was one of the shows. And the other one was men. He was speaking out for men's men-only clubs, so that clubs should be able to have... Only right, sure. men like as members. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's interesting. I look forward to uh, hearing that. Uh, you know, it's funny. Recently, I went back and watched, I think it's on the YouTube, this debate from 1948 of uh, Thomas Dewey and Harold Stassen. They were mm-hmm. both running for the president, Republican nomination. And the whole debate was on the one question of should the Communist Party of the United States be banned? Yeah. And it was a fascinating discussion um, just listening to these two two folks. Can like, I tell you one sure, more thing? Yeah, I know you may be going to a break. But, you know, my, one, my first job, professional job, uh, was, in, was in a movie, a Clint Eastwood movie, actually. And I had to join the Screen Actors Guild. And when I went, uh, you know, to sign up for the union, 
they gave me a form that said, um, I am not, nor never have been, nor ever will become a member of the Communist Party. And remember, Ronald Reagan was the, right. had been the president of the Screen Actors Guild. They don't do it anymore, but this was in, I don't know, 72, I think, or 71. And I said to them, are you kidding me? I said, I'm not a communist. I said, but I don't think you should have the right to tell me that I can't have a political ideology, and which is one of the Supreme oh, Court yeah. cases. Right oh, now. yeah. And you, they said, you don't sign this, you don't get to work. So you signed it. Of course. So later on, when you did become a communist, did you have to update SAG after <laughs> that you were now a communist and in violation of uh, of your oath? Hey, um, want to pick your brain on a few issues in the legal system right now. One of the political issues that dovetails with the legal system, and in fact, it seems like they all do these days, is the issue of affirmative action. Before we talk right. about what the Supreme Court decided and where future cases may go overall what is your view of affirmative action as it relates to college admissions specifically well, oh, just in college admissions uh you know i i as i think that i think there's a benefit to having a diverse uh, student body in college admissions and i don't think that factoring in i think i think what was it wasn't it texas who did the thing where they said the top 20 percent of um of, of each school district. I mean, to say the Supreme Court saying that racism is no longer a problem, I can understand why they say that, because whether you're a black justice like Clarence Thomas or a white justice like uh, Samuel Olito, you both have access uh, to uh, airfare on a billionaire's private plane <laughs> and a luxury resort. So obviously there's no discrimination anymore because, you know, whether you're black or white, you both can get that if you're on the Supreme Court. The um, By the way, people want to call in and uh, talk to Richard Bay. They can. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let's talk about the Supreme Court case they decided specifically on affirmative action. The Harvard case and this University of North Carolina case where essentially they ruled six to three that you can't they created this issue of colorblindness and they said you can't take race into account directly if you want to mention it in your essay that's one thing but unless you're talking about west point or annapolis you can't include race as part of your admissions criteria what do you think of what the court did there um i think it's i think as um uh, uh, judge jackson said uh you can say that the Supreme Court can come out and say that racism is is not really a problem to be addressed in this way, but that's not really what happens in the real world. I mean, you cannot consider the kinds of, and I don't even know the ultimate answer to this, but the kind of uh, public school education uh, that most children get in the inner city. Um, and I don't know, I would assume to some degree that Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Clarence Thomas, um, Judge Jackson, that all of them benefited. And I think the country benefited, in, uh, certainly, uh, by affirmative action that might have um, offered them a place at uh, Yale uh, or Columbia Law School. So, uh, so you know, on the other hand, you know, I understand J.D. Vance was a hillbilly, <laughs> <laughs> the hillbilly elegy. Right. And he got into Yale, and I'm sure they factored in the fact of his background 
uh, and, and in his essay, where, where he came from. In fact, the, the, his book and his movie documents that, you know, that, um, you know, he felt very different. He felt like a fish out of water. He felt they looked down upon him. Um, but I'm sure he benefited by the fact, but that was economic. That wasn't uh, racial. Right. But it was also sociological. Sure. He came from a family of drug addicts. Right. And- so I, I guess the question is, should somebody that is from an upper middle class no, black family that's right. uh, ha- get extra points on their Harvard application right. over someone like a J.D. Right. Vance, who's poor and from a family of drug uh, addicts? Or the, the generally, though, that's. I don't think that is the case. But if Eddie Murphy coming to America as the, <laughs> the king of whatever country and he applies to and they are oh, black, let's let's check that one off. <laughs> yeah, exa- I'm sure he's exactly that, the <laughs> applicant that they would enjoy. No, but there are foreign I know, applicants, I know, I know, right? I know there are indeed. 800-848-9222 if you want to talk to Richard Bay. James I, uh, is in Pennsylvania. Okay. Hello, James. Hi, how are you tonight, Frank? Uh, doing well, James. W- w- what's on your mind? Well, I live in a, a shanty. You know what a shanty is? An old beat-up house. As much as it is up in the Appalachian Mountains, sir. And I was educated as a practical nurse, and I'm gay, right? But, you know, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And um, to demonize the whole race and put them down. And every time I call there, I'm accused of being a transsexual and a pedophile and everything else. I don't wear those shoes, sir. I think my people should crawl out of the woodwork. You know what? Can you remember back in Norfolk, Virginia, I think it was, where the black cameraman, or no, the man, the anchor, the man that it was filmed, filmed with black, and there was an anchor couple, they were white, and those white couple, they were religious and on the TV, you know, and they kept taunting that black man about being gay. You know what he did in the news? He took a gun and killed him in cold blood. Okay, you well, James, uh, James, thank you. I want to congratulate yeah. you. You are single-handedly responsible for our uh, telephone talent coordinator, Elias, getting a promotion <laughs> after today's show. Uh, well done. That is a textbook call screening right there. 800-848-9222 if you think you could do I'd better I'd really like to talk about the other case, about the um, the gay website. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I, well, I'll ask you about that. But, see, just on the on the college admission issue, now you have the civil rights group that's challenging legacy admission and they're That's saying right. that the practice discriminates against students of color by giving an unfair boost to the mostly white children of alumni. Where do you see that going? Well, it's certainly it's not based on race, but, you know, Harvard, it's like 20 percent of their student body, our legacy, and 70 percent of those students are white. So and, and when I went to Yale, I was a, a graduate student at Yale and I was a graduate student advisor. They'd give me free board, and I got to eat free in the commissary mm-hmm. with all the undergrads. And a, a good proportion of the undergrads that I met, very nice people. But I always thought to get into Yale, you had to be really super intelligent. And I didn't find them to be as well-read as I was with a public school education. And But the one thing I didn't know about and, and and I'm so naive coming from Far Rockaway, maybe. I'd never heard of a prep school. I never heard of a trust fund. Mm-hmm. And I never heard of the names that they had. Like right. Thaddeus, Barton, Prescott. And, yeah. yeah. What, 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 what was, uh, oh, Kelsey, Barton. That's outstanding. Uh, I mean, you know, they, they had these old, weird, old-fashioned names, you know. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember the one guy's name. But they, I, I, they weren't bad people. Sure. But they were... Right, different, different socioeconomic. But, the, but they also were not what you would expect at Yale, right. you know. 
Got it. Got they it. knew how to. They knew which fork to use <laughs> to open the oyster shell. You know, I didn't. <laughs> got it. So you, you both got something of an education, <laughs> right, I guess. Right. Um, you mentioned the gay we- the uh, gay website, the gay wedding website All case. Right. Uh, give me your take on this situation. If people aren't familiar with this, basically, this uh, woman had this company creating wedding websites. And- no, she didn't. Oh, she didn't. She hypothetically had a company. Right? Hypo- she imagined. She imagined that someday. <laughs> Someday in the future, I might have a website. So this woman, she's never made a website for or or worked for on weddings. No, she's she's a graphic designer, and uh, she said she said I've never made a website. I've never worked on weddings, but I might want to do that someday. And then there was a gay man who inquired about her creating. Uh, uh, such a website and invitations, which violated her Christian principles. And so she's, and then we find out that there was no gay man, that there was no gay wedding. The man in the, in the pleading that her lawyers put before the court is married, has kids and is, and is married to a woman for 10 years. Wow. So, uh, the, the argument ag- against seeing this as factual is the is that it wasn't intrinsic to the case, but her lawyers and the leading lawyer, most people don't know this, the leading lawyer on this case is the same woman who was um, one of the leading lawyers in the uh, abortion pill case. Oh, really? Kazmarek. Uh-huh. And she just happens to be the wife of Senator Josh Hawley. Oh, interesting. All right. So to me, so so here we have a case where we're deciding an imaginary website with an imaginary gay man and an imaginary wedding, and um, and, and the Supreme Court is saying, well, you know, she first of all, why does this woman even have standing in this case? Yeah, uh, you know, in order to have standing in a case, you have to show actual injury, injury in fact. To the party that is the plaintiff. Sure. What is her injury? Her her um, uh, her dream of the future? I mean, it's it's just crazy. The uh, I mean, look, I think you're right on the money in terms of the standing question. The state of Colorado did tell her that if uh, she denied this service, hypothetically all around, that it would be in violation of the of the code that they passed all for right, civil so rights. So let me propose this to you. Mm. Suppose I say as Justice Scalia once uh, um, uh, um, opined that the Second Amendment says you have the right to bear arms. And suppose I go out and I buy a stinger or a javelin, which you carry. Sure. They're born. Do I have the right? So I go out and I buy them and then I get arrested. Or or do do I have the right then to go to jail, you know, not to go to jail, to say, I'm just testing the law out because that's what I think the Constitution says. I, I think that's uh, I think that's fair. What I was going to say though is, uh, l- let's say you're right. Let's make all these people real people though. And does doesn't she have a point? The plaintiff don't the plaintiffs have a point that you can't force someone to do work? I mean, isn't that kind of the the antithesis of the freedom of commerce well, and everything uh, like that. We, we do have laws that say, uh, listen, when um, Rosa Parks, the Rose, Rosa Parks actually had to sit on a bus 
to challenge right. the yeah. idea. She actually had to sit on the bus when you, Lawrence versus Texas. Gay man and his lover both thrown in jail for having consensual, consensual adult sex. That is an injury of fact to a legal person. When in, in Griswold versus Connecticut, when you look at that case, which is about contraceptives, the doctor who was distributing contraceptives went to jail. That is an injury of fact. This is an injury of imagination that is fabricated by a right-wing Christian group. I, I know it's late. Can you stick around a few more yeah, minutes, Chris? All right. I can stick uh, around all night. All right. We're going we're gonna to take some calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Richard Bay is here. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. By the way, one of the things that you can enjoy on the Richard Bay podcast is they do these throwbacks to different moments that uh, Richard has had in his broadcasting career. For instance, there's this one of Richard Bay interviewing Jimmy Carter. You know, the presidency... You have had a few years to think about it. You have been busy. You've been writing some books. You have been doing other things. You've been teaching. Do you miss the presidency, though? Not really. I, I remind myself that even if I had been elected to a second term, I would now be out of office and someone else would be there. Obviously, I wanted to be uh, there for eight years. I think I could have done a lot more for peace and human rights and, and uh, arms control had I stayed there. But I've had a very full life and a very enjoyable and exciting and challenging life since I left the White House. So, so there is life after public office, I'm glad to announce. And our family have uh, both enjoyed the four years in the White House and also the four years since then. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. This is, of course, from Jesus Christ Superstar. It was also the uh, opening theme to a terrific radio show back in the day that was uh, called The Buzz, that was co-hosted by my in-studio guest, Richard Bay. You can check him out on the Richard Bay Talk podcast. Just search Richard Bay Talk on YouTube or on any podcast app. I listen uh, whenever new episodes are posted. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. R Richard, you, I know that you've been seeing a lot of uh, Broadway shows since you've been in yeah, town. Yeah, here I thought I was going to have yeah. a nice... <laughs> Uh, unoffensive, uh, you know, uh, uncontroversial talk I'm sorry. about theater. I'm sorry. Well, but you know, my background's in theater. I know that, right. Um, I've seen you perform. You're terrific. What did you say? I saw you when you played the in the sanitation the garbage uh, show. Yeah, 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 right. Oh, God. Well, I don't know if that was terrific. but No, uh, I, I don't sell I, yourself short. I think you're a terrific actor. I, I went to Yale Drama School and w with a lot of talented actors that you would know and some that you wouldn't know. A lot that you wouldn't know. It was all very talented. But I love the theater. I love... I love being on the stage. I love being on the audience, in the audience. I love reading about theater. 
Uh, I love reading reviews of theater, and I see a lot of uh, theater when I come to New York. I always make a... Is Broadway back? I know they were really struggling during the pandemic. Do you get the sense that there's just as much excitement and the crowds are just as robust as they were pre-pandemic? I think it's pretty damn close, yeah, except that I don't see the plays that the tourists really want to see. So what's on your must-see list for people? Well, actually, unfortunately, the, the two... Things that were just the most incredible just closed this weekend. And one of them was Leopoldstadt by uh, Tom Stoppard. And it was the story of a Jewish family from the turn of the century all the way up to the 50s and their experiences through. When I saw that, I was afterwards, the audience leapt to its feet with a standing ovation. And as I did, I, I keeled over and just was crying my eyes out. Wow. The woman in front of me turned around and said, are you all right? Here's a tissue. I couldn't stop. I was sobbing uncontrollably. Another thing that was incredible that, 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 that um, closed this weekend was if you saw Killing Eve, there was an actress named Jodie Comer on it who played the Russian assassin so effectively that afterwards, I, after watching it, I said, oh, this woman must be Russian. And then I looked her up, and she's actually born in Scotland, lived in England. So she had a one-woman show on Broadway called uh, Prima Fasi, where she was playing a lawyer who defended rapists very effectively in a courtroom. And then at one point, um, she felt she was raped herself. Wow. Had to defend herself. But this woman has never been on a professional stage. She hasn't had professional theatrical training. When I was watching it, my jaw dropped. You're kidding. And now both of those shows closed? But, but one is still, this one's still open. It's called Goodnight Oscar. Mm-hmm. And that too, Sean Hayes, uh, who I guess was on Will and Grace, which I never saw, he plays Oscar Levant, who was this piano player who suffered from schizophrenia, who used to be on... Uh, was, was that the um, pianist that they feature in the film Shine with Jeffrey Rush? No, or, no, 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 it wasn't. Okay, is, so I can't a, keep my... He, he, was, he also did some train. movie, American in Paris. He did some movies, but at this point, it's the Jack Parr show, and there's an actor playing Jack Parr oh, cool. who has his mannerisms down, and he has booked Oscar Levant, and his wife has gotten him a four-day pass out from the psych ward. Uh, it now, sounds great. Well, give me the title again. It's called Good Night Oscar. Good Night Oscar. Now, in the second act, Jack Parr insists that he get to play, even though in the first act, he, he says things on the air that you just couldn't say on television at that time. But he plays Rhapsody in Blue. And I looked at this and I went, while he's having a psychotic break, and I looked at the, his fingers and I'm going, because I play piano, and I said, can't be playing this. I'm going, they must have a disc lavier with the keys right. all pro. No, he actually plays it and has his face turning to the orchestra as he's having a psychotic break and it brings the house down. People go crazy. I can imagine. The fourth play that's still playing that's really worth seeing is Parade. It originally played in 1999 at Lincoln Center where I saw it and it sort of left me cold. I thought, ah, this should be in a history book. But the production here is very moving, and it's... You weren't out there protesting when it opened, right, the parade? Why were people protesting? Oh, you didn't, uh, I'll fill you in on that. You're going to stick around, right? You want me to? Yeah, stick around. Okay. 800-848-9222. A lot of people already eager to chat with Richard Bay. John Kiriakou joining me as well. Keep asking questions. The Other Side of Midnight. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Are the fragments from a meteor, in fact, the first recognized interstellar meteor, actually parts of an alien gadget? One Harvard professor thinks so. We're going to get into it in a bit. Also, former CIA officer uh, John Kiriakou is going to join me in about uh, 10, 15 minutes. We're going to run, th- talk about the uh, the Trump case. We're going to talk about the uh, the CIA in general, a whole bunch of other things. But a lot of people are champing at the bit to get a hold of Richard Bay, veteran TV and radio talk show host. He's now hosting the Richard Bay Talk podcast. I've asked him to stick around a bit. I got to ask you. You won't have Dick Bay to kick around anymore. I just uh, turn your mic on there. I know. Oh, I do. There you go. Okay. There you go. You won't have Dick Bay to kick around anymore. <laughs> so take a chance for run. But a uh, quick question, though. Uh, you, are you familiar with Predict It, the betting market? Predict It? Uh, I see. Yeah, you mean for, uh, for elections. Pl- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where yeah. people bet yeah, on yeah, which candidate's going to win. Yeah, yeah. So um, it doesn't sound like you're too impressed. With well, I, I usually take that eight ball and shake it and <laughs> turn it upside down. Will Biden win? It it's it is doubtful. So but, if, if you but, go if you go to predict it right now, they actually have uh, Gavin Newsom as having three times the chance of becoming the next president. Uh, over Ron DeSantis. That's how the traders are trading the the option of a Gavin Newsom election. I know you're you know you're a Democrat and voted for Biden, but do do you think that Biden will end up as the nominee? And if he's not, how do you like Newsom as a potential nominee? Uh, well, Newsom would be more vigorous, I think, as a, as a nominee. But uh, you know, as will will Biden be the uh, uh, nominee? Well, as the as our Muslim friends say, inshallah, God willing. <laughs> <laughs> well, so if you're as a Democrat, do, are you rooting for Biden to be the nominee, or are you thinking that someone else would be a stronger candidate? I certainly think somebody else would be a stronger candidate. And if, but I will certainly vote sure, for no, Joe I, Biden. I, I, and I also am aware of all of his accomplishments. And I also am aware that Biden, as aged as he is, has surrounded himself with some very adept, experienced, uh, successful uh, people uh, who can initiate his policies. And there are so many of so many things that he has done. What you know, Biden, Biden. Biden doesn't have the talent of salesmanship. Trump, that's his only talent. But he's he's a genius at it. Is Trump the strongest Republican candidate in 2024 or the weakest? Um, or somewhere well, in between? I think, for instance... My, I can my, see you making a case for both. Yeah, my yeah. opinion is DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump. Electorally? Uh, no. It, oh, policy-wise. In, 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 in office. I mean, Trump is like a bull in the China shop, you know, and uh, but he usually there, there have been people who say, nah, you don't really mean that uh, we should invade Guatemala. You know, DeSantis is a methodical. Um, um, right. You can see it in those authoritarian. Eyes. <laughs> yeah. 
who believes that he is on a mission from God. Yeah, Trump, it's very interesting. Most of the attacks on DeSantis seem to be coming from the left on uh, entitlement and not wanting to lower the Social Security age on things like um, Medicare, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, other things. The First Step Act, although they don't really even mention that anymore. All right. A lot of people eager to chat with you. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Warren in the Deposit New York. Hello, Warren. Thanks for taking my call tonight, guys. Sure. Sure. What's my on your mind? Is, my, my question is for Richard. Uh, the more the government gets involved with affirmative action or quotas or anything, doesn't that cause reverse discrimination? And therefore, it's racism and discrimination is never going to stop because our government is promoting it. Well, I, I think it's trying to address a problem, address a historical problem. When when there has been slavery for a hundred years, and then Jim Crow for another hundred and twenty years, and then uh, you know uh, insufficient education or medical um, attention to a certain group of Americans for another forty years. I mean, there is a reason why uh, infant mortality is uh, is higher uh, at birth among black people. There's a there's a go look at the schools where black kids go to school and then look at the kids. Look at the schools where white rich kids go to school. Now, it is true that poor white kids well, like J.D. Vance when he was growing up. Probably his school wasn't the greatest either. So it is true that there is an economic element to all of this. But I don't I see it as a redress of a problem, which I think has been successful throughout my life. We never had the first time I saw a black TV anchor, Max Robinson, the first person, the black woman who had a lead on a TV show, uh, Diane Carroll, where she played the nurse. And now when you go to Broadway, Oh, my God. I think we've gone overboard in some ways. You know, every other show is an all black show, you know. But uh, yeah, well, I think that's kind of what Pence and some of the others were saying is maybe there was a need for this 40 or 50 years ago, but uh, meaning affirmative action. And maybe it's not there presently. I think it still is. When we looked at when they had the um, the uh, that whole movement about Oscars so white, remember, and there were no black nominees. Well, all of a sudden, it's like every every black person in front of a camera has been nominated for something. That's but you true. know what? We we missed out on so much black talent over all those years. Imagine, you know, the the, the, the talents that we would miss because they are incredible actors in the black community. Joan is in Manhattan. Hello, Joan. Now, Joan found something else to do. 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good evening. Or good morning, actually. Um, I would like to comment and respond on affirmative action because what that last caller said is typical of what we hear all the time. You know, my niece was accepted into Princeton. She applied early. She wrote a great essay. She gave a great interview. That's why she got in. But some of the Asian students who didn't get in to Ivy League have now made accusations that my niece got in because of affirmative action. I'm sick and tired of this. At Princeton, less than 5% of the incoming student body will be black. Why are people so upset that there is a sprinkling of black students at these higher universities? What is their 
issue with this. This is not like they're letting in unqualified black students. My niece is smarter than the majority of people listening to this radio station, and she got into Princeton because of her hard work. But I know there are people listening right now right, who David. say she got in because she's black, and that's not true. Well, let me ask you both, David and Richard. You know, uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, he says he doesn't hire Ivy League uh, clerks because he doesn't trust almost exactly what David is saying. He doesn't trust that they've taken the most qualified applicants because of affirmative action. <laughs> and um, but he so now that let's say affirmative action goes away, if your niece, David, did get in on the merits wouldn't that take away the people viewing her with a jaundiced eye because now they know that she made it in on the merits uh, rather than no. through affirmative action? No, and I'll tell you exactly why. I've been alive long enough, and I know Richard has as well, to know that uh, quotas went away a long time ago. Quotas were declared illegal That's in right. 1978 with the Backgate decision. Yet I still hear people call this station claiming they didn't get jobs because of racial quotas. They will be people claiming for the next 30, 50 years that a qualified black person got in through affirmative action, even though it will no longer exist, because that's how certain white people are. All right, let let me get Richard to weigh in here. No, no, I I agree with him. I agree with him. But I, yeah, quotas aren't the problem here. But, and you know what? I don't even know if it's really going to change all that much, because you can write in your essay. But the problem, there was an article the other day about a guy who was uh, an associate professor who got hired by students applying to Ivy League colleges. The first one he went to was an Asian student. And the Asian student said, can you make my application sound less Asian? Mm. Because they thought they had too many Asians. And then afterwards, he would go to black students, and can you make my application seem more black? Um so, and and McWhorter, who is a, a, a sort of a center-right um, black uh, columnist for the uh, New York Times, John Mc, McWhorter, he wrote about it, and he, he went through college, graduate school, Ph.D. program, and he said, yes, there were people who looked at him and said, well, you're only here because of your, uh, because of your skin sure. color. And he said, you know... In one or two cases, that was probably true. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Joe in the Bronx. Hello. Hey Frank, how are you? Hanging in there, Joe. What's on your mind? Well, okay, yeah. Uh, questions for Richard. Um, now uh, you brought up uh, a situation, a hypothetical situation with a woman that creates websites. Um, should the Supreme Court's time and energy be used on hypotheticals uh, theoretically? No, no. I think the law states that you have to have an injury of fact in order to have standing in a Supreme Court case. Richard, so, we're going to have to end it there. John Kiriakou okay. is waiting in the wings. Next time you're in town, you've got to come in and do all four hours uh, because there's way too many issues that I want to bring up with you that we didn't get to, not only the political but the cultural and uh, lifestyle-wise. If you enjoy Richard Bay, you're going to want to check out the Richard Bay Talk podcast. Just search Richard right, Bay Talk you. on YouTube. I'm a subscriber or on any podcast app. Uh, I'll see you next time you're in town. I sure hope so. It's great to see you, Great Frank. to see you, my friend. Take care now. And 
And uh, if you know, obviously, we spent a lot of time talking about Pat Cooper when he passed away. If you're a Pat Cooper fan, you have got to check out the Richard Bay podcast that he did, where he played of uh, some clips of his interview with Pat Cooper from about 28 years ago. It's worth the price of admission. Is it believe 28 me. years ago? I think so. Yeah, oh, maybe it was 27. 96. Here's uh, well, so yeah, it's 27, right? 27 years ago. Um, here's uh, Richard Bay talking to Pat Cooper on Now, those of us who can't, you know, who haven't found the way to sustain a marriage for that long. Very simple. We have to adopt babies. No, here's the way you do it. You want to sustain your marriage? Don't live with each other every second. It's no good. This disappeared for three, four years. (laughs) I'm serious. I'm serious. Because when you live and work together all the time, it becomes very boring. You disappear, you go to Europe for seven, eight years, you come back, you wave, Hawaii, you send the money, always send the money, and then you're in good shape. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It seems like just about every major national or international issue in the news comes down to the intelligence community playing a key role or at least being rumored to play a key role. Well, I am thrilled to welcome back to the program a gentleman who is the most seasoned intelligence officer, the most accomplished intelligence officer that I've ever had the privilege of interviewing. In addition to being an analyst and a case officer for the CIA, he served as a senior investigator for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was a counterterrorism consultant for ABC News. And along the way, he managed to become the first CIA officer to be convicted of passing classified information to a reporter and was actually sentenced to 30 months in prison. These days, he's a journalist and an author. His new book is Lying and Lie Detection, a CIA Insider's Guide. Welcome back to the program, John Kiriakou. John, thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Frank. So good to be with you again. John, uh, I mentioned that you were sentenced to 30 months in prison for passing uh, classified information to a reporter. I certainly think, and we've talked about your case a number of times, that you made the right decision and a very brave one. Now, uh, President Trump is actually in a bit of hot water for his handling of classified information. I'm curious, with that with that case specifically, the Mar-a-Lago documents case, Given your experience, both being a convicted felon and a CIA officer, what's your take on that case? I wrote an op-ed about a year ago in which I said, uh, well, in, in which they entitled it, uh, don't charge Donald Trump with espionage or anyone else. Because I, I really believe that this is not why the Espionage Act was written. In 1917, it was written to combat German saboteurs. And beginning with the Obama administration, uh, White Houses uh, started using the Espionage Act as a cudgel to uh, to to attack uh, national security leaks, to attack whistleblowers. 
And they've put themselves in this policy corner where now everybody who reveals classified information has to be charged under the Espionage Act. This, this was inevitable. They did this to themselves. When I say they, I mean, I mean those, those policymakers at the Justice Department. I, I think this is a wreck. I don't think Donald Trump should be charged with espionage, but I don't think anybody else should be either unless they're working for a foreign government. And correct me if I'm wrong, the way the Espionage Act is worded, unlike a lot of other crimes, you don't even have to have criminal intent to be charged right. or convicted under it, right? You're exactly right. And that was a precedent that I'm sorry to say was set in my case. Um, I certainly didn't have criminal intent. My intent was was to inform the public that the CIA was committing a war crime. And uh, in, in my case, Judge Leonie Brinkema in the Eastern District of Virginia said that she would not respect precedent uh, where other judges had ruled that the defendant had to have shown criminal intent to be prosecuted. She looked at me in the courtroom and she said, and I'll never forget her words, she said, Mr. Kiriakou, either you did it or you didn't do it. And I think you did it. And so that became the basis for all these cases. That's why no national security defendant has ever won a case in the federal district courts. That's why Donald Trump is in such deep trouble. The Justice Department should never have allowed this to get as far as it did, mm. not just with Trump, but for pretty much anybody else that's been charged with espionage in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Speaking of uh, President Trump, the last time that we spoke on the radio, it was actually the final day of the Trump administration. And we were hoping that we were going to see a pardon, an 11th hour pardon of you <laughs> by President Trump. I'm sure you've had a couple of years to look at this, to ask some questions, to explore this. Do you have any idea why you weren't the recipient of a Trump pardon? Oh, what a great question. Um, yeah, I do. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends in both parties, well-connected friends in both parties. And um, uh, I befriended Tucker Carlson. He had me on his show a dozen times. He talked to the president about pardoning me. I hired a Republican lobbyist to push for a pardon. And then in the end, I didn't get it. And uh, Tucker told me that he had heard from somebody inside the White House that for whatever reason, I was tied to Ed Snowden and Julian Assange, that that Donald Trump was prepared to pardon the three of us. And when Mitch McConnell got word that this was going to happen on the final day of the Trump administration, he called the president and said that if he pardoned Julian Assange and Ed Snowden, he didn't mention me, but he said if he pardoned Julian Assange and Ed Snowden, that he would lose Republican senators in the in the Senate and they would uh, not support him uh, in in the um, on the Senate side of the of the impeachment process, wow. that he would lose that whole base. And I, I don't know why why we were all lumped in together. But when Trump dropped the idea of pardoning Assange and Snowden, 
he dropped the idea of pardoning me as well. Interesting. One of the things that we have heard a little bit about, especially in one of the lawsuits involving my uh, colleague and friend Rudy Giuliani, is this whole idea that essentially pardons were were for sale. And that's not an uh, yeah. allegation that's unique to the Trump administration. There was a lot of talk about that in the waning days of the Clinton administration, and I'm sure in a lot of other administrations as well. In your right. experience, since you actually hired a lobby to try and grease the skids a little bit for a pardon. Do you think there's any truth to that? Were there pardons for sale? I, that's a tough one. You know, I found myself in the, in the midst of all of that. Uh, I had a meeting with Rudy Giuliani here in Washington at the Trump Hotel, uh, and he, he didn't ask me directly, but he had an aide um, ask me for uh, $2 million. And I laughed and I said, first of all, I don't have $2 million. I'll never have $2 million. Secondly, why would I spend $2 million to recoup a $700,000 pension? Right. That's just, it doesn't make any sense. And I got up, I shook their hands, I walked out. Giuliani had excused himself to go to the bathroom, and his aide said, you don't talk about the pardon with Rudy, you talk about it with me, and I talk about it with Rudy. I said, that's fine. So nothing ever came of it. It was only recently in this um in this civil suit that's been filed against him by a former aide, uh, that she alleges that he told her he was taking these $2 million fees for pardons and splitting it with the president. Now, I'll tell you, I've never been approached by the FBI. I've never been subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury. And that leads me to believe that the FBI, at least, does not believe the allegation that pardons mm -hmm. were for sale. Mm -hmm. And uh, based on some of the other things that were in that lawsuit, uh, I don't give uh, that particular former aide to Giuliani a great deal of uh, credibility, but uh, I had to no, ask the question. I thought it was I. interesting. Hey, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with John Kiriakou. He is the author of the new book, Lying and Lie Detection, a CIA insider's guide, which we're going to tell you about in just a bit. Since you alluded to the Julian Assange case, it's looking like he could be extradited to the United States in a matter of days or weeks. How do you think his prospects for a fair trial in the United States are? By the way, just a reminder to the audience, I've talked about this case a lot. Julian Assange is not an American citizen and has never been to the United States as far as I know, and yet he's going to right. be put on trial here for committing journalism. Give me your take on the Assange case and how it looks for him. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the, the guy's a journalist, and even if you don't believe he's a journalist, you have to acknowledge that he's a publisher. Um, I also have to agree that, um, at least uh, according to the people around him, he could be here in, you know, it could be days, it could be weeks, but it's pretty much upon us. Um, there is still there is still a glimmer of hope. Uh, he can still appeal to the European Court of Human Rights. And there is a precedent, not just one, there are three precedents where the European Court of Human Rights um, declined to extradite a British citizen. Uh, he's not a British citizen, but he's an Australian citizen, a five eyes citizen, uh, to the United States because of the way the U.S. uses uh, solitary confinement. Uh, it, it's it's been declared by the United Nations as a form of torture, and uh, the European Court of Human Rights has objected to it. I wouldn't bet my paycheck that that happens. But the more important question is the first one that you asked there, 
I do not believe that Julian Assange can get a fair trial in the United States. Uh, he, he has been charged right here in the Eastern District of Virginia, uh, the, same, the same place where I was charged, where Ed Snowden was charged, where Jeffrey Sterling was charged, Daniel Hale, the uh, drone whistleblower, was charged. Again, no national security defendant has ever won a case there. And, uh, you know, they don't call it the espionage court for nothing. It's because uh, it's the home of the CIA. It's the home of the Pentagon. It's the home of dozens of intelligence community contractors, what we call beltway bandits down here. And his jury, were he to be extradited, would be made up of people who work or who have relatives or friends who work for the CIA, the FBI, the Pentagon, the Department of Homeland Security. He can't possibly get a fair trial. Not possible. You know, in my own case, you may remember this from an earlier conversation we had. Um, I was very fortunate to be able to hire O.J. Simpson's jury consultant. He happened to be my best friend's wife's uncle, and he did it for nothing. So he flew up here. We got him a security clearance. He went through 15,000 pages of classified discovery. And in the end, he said to me, look, if we were in any other district in America, I would say, let's go for it. We're going to win this thing. But the Eastern District of Virginia, you don't have a prayer. And he told me to take a plea. Innocent or guilty. It doesn't matter if you're facing an espionage charge. You don't have a prayer. uh, That is so disconcerting and so awful. Talking with John Cariaco. The in the case against Assange, uh, it's being reported that the FBI is actually asking journalists of all people for help prosecuting Assange, potentially if there's a trial, even testifying in court. Now, that is a pretty wild precedent, isn't it, for the government, the federal government and the federal law enforcement agency to actually be seeking help from journalists and going after a fellow journalist oh boy is it and it and it smacks of desperation frank you know the the fbi's star witness in this case um is a is a an icelander uh, a young man who is a convicted pedophile and a convicted uh, embezzler and this is who they've rested their case on This is the guy that's supposed to carry them to victory. Now, can you imagine now that he's admitted that he's been convicted of of buggering young boys and convicted of lying about his access to Julian Assange? Can you imagine them flying him from Iceland to be the star witness in the case against Julian? So they know that the case is weak, not just because because uh, Assange is a, a journalist, not just because he never asked Chelsea Manning to uh, download the documents. Chelsea Manning did it on her own. Uh, But because their star witness has imploded. And so in desperation, they're having to go to other journalists who are protected by the First Amendment to make their case. It's, It's just unprecedented. Let me ask you about another uh, agency with uh, big initials that can intimidate people, your former agency, the CIA. The CIA director, Bill Burns, apparently believes that the negative attitude towards Russia in the invasion of Ukraine could actually lead to a once in a generation opportunity to recruit Russian spies. Do you think he's right about that? 
Um, it's possible. We've seen things like this happen going back to the 1950s, where in periods where it looks like we're we're closer to war than we have been uh, at, at other points in the past, uh, Soviets, and then after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Russians would reach out to us. Now, the way it used to work in the old days is a gutsy Russian, let's say, scientist would uh, would identify the, the car of an American diplomat and, and, you know, stick a note under the windshield wiper or something like that. It was very crude. Now uh, the CIA is encouraging Russians to contact them on, on the dark web and uh, using encryption keys and things like that. Or while they're overseas, uh, they, if you go on the internet, if you go on the CIA's website, even um, they'll tell you how to get in touch with the CIA using secure communications, hoping that you are a Russian military official, a Russian intelligence official, or the best of all, somebody who happens to be close to Vladimir Putin. One of the things that uh, that was reported, and I think it was disproved when the L.A. Times looked into this, but one of the things that was at least rumored about was that the CIA may have actually been behind implicitly or explicitly that attempted coup by the Wagner group in Russia. Is that something that you think is a possibility? Um, it's possible, certainly. Um, I, I think it's probably not the case just because uh, Prigozhin was somebody with a reputation as as being um, a loose cannon, somebody who was uh, difficult to impossible to control. And, you know, I think the CIA would have been more clandestine about it. Mm -hmm. This guy just he couldn't stop himself from speaking in public. He couldn't stop himself from speaking to journalists laying out his plans in advance for for all the media to see that that's just not the way the CIA would have coached him does the CIA in the 21st century routinely play a role in regime change abroad or attempted regime change and are there a couple examples that you can mention for folks if they do oh that answer is a big yes the CIA has uh, something called the covert action staff um, now there's a there's a bureaucratic process to this. Let's say let's say you you're a CIA employee, uh, Frank, and you you've got this idea that you want to overthrow the government of uh, of uh, whatever uh, Tajikistan, let's say, and uh, so you go to the covert action staff and you say I've got this idea, and they help you write the idea and put it in the proper formatting and such, and then it begins this odyssey. Your idea it goes to the CIA's uh, general counsel to make sure that it's legal. And if they deem it to be legal, it goes to the operational division. Do they have the resources to help you overthrow this uh, government? They say yes. Then it goes to the Justice Department. The Office of Legal Counsel there reviews it, makes sure that it's legal. They send it to the National Security Council uh, general counsel. He says, yes, it's legal. Then it goes to the uh, National Security Advisor. Now, this is where the policy uh, world comes in. Is it in the U.S. national interest to overthrow this government? If, they, if the National Security Advisor says yes, he signs it, goes to the president for his signature. Once it's signed, the White House keeps a copy, the CIA gets a copy, and the attorney general gets a copy of the signed order, and then the CIA goes out to overthrow that government. Now, it could, it could be something as, as 
minor as, you know, $100,000 to recruit uh, journalists to write propaganda, anti-government propaganda, pro-U.S. propaganda to help overthrow government. It could be uh, to provide weapons and ammunition and materiel to to set up a militia force to, you know, take over the prime minister's office and shoot the prime minister. It can be it can be anything. Uh, and you asked if this happens. Oh, it's happened repeatedly throughout history. And it's not classified. Much of this has been declassified. You can go onto Wikipedia and they actually have a master list of all of the covert action programs that have been implemented by the CIA to overthrow governments. The very first one was the Italian election of 1947. And you go through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and it's like a laundry list of African and Latin American countries. Wow. Uh, that uh, it's uh, and, and that conduct still goes on. Uh, I know we can go back to the 40s or the 50s, but that conduct still goes on today. Right. It wow. still goes on today. Now, you have to be careful, right? You have to be careful because you always have to weigh the potential for blowback. Sure. Blowback is if it goes bad or you get caught. You know, how how's the government going to respond to this becoming public? And oftentimes, even if the overthrow is in U.S. national interests, uh, the government will decide that the potential for blowback isn't worth the trouble. Talking with John Kiriakou, his new book is Lying and Lie Detection, a CIA insider's guide. John, uh, why'd you write this book? Who's the intended audience for this book? Well, you know, I, Skyhorse Publishing came to me, and I like these guys. Me Skyhorse. too. I love they, those they guys. Have all, they really are independent thinkers. Uh, and they um, they said, hey, we have an idea for a series. I, I had written a book for them called um, The CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis uh, in the second half of the Trump administration. And so they liked that, and they said, how about a, a how-to guide? I said, like what? How, how to do what? And they said, well, we're envisioning three books. CIA Insider's Guide to Lying and Lie Detection, uh, Surveillance and Surveillance Detection, and Disappearing and Living Off the Grid. And just as we signed this contract, COVID hit. So mm. I had nothing else to do but to sit and think <laughs> the big thoughts. <laughs> so that's what I did. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I was on a conservative uh, talk show uh, just as this book was coming out. And, um, and the host said, this has right-wing extremism written all over it. And I said, no, that's, that's not the intended audience. The intended audience is, well, depending on the book, like the surveillance book, you know, are you, do you think your wife's cheating on you maybe? You want to know how to be discreet about following her around or following her boyfriend around? I show you how to set up the uh, observation posts, and, and, and I do exercises in this book, and we talk about what surveillance is and what it means and what it doesn't mean and all that stuff. Disappearing and living off the grid. You know, so many people just hate the fact that, that it seems all of our lives are on the Internet for everybody sure. to see. Sure. And it's, it's not really possible to live off the grid like you could have in the 60s or even the 70s. But it's possible to go pretty quiet, and I talk about that a lot. Um, and then the third one, lying and lie detection, that was just kind of a fun one because, you know, we're, we're all lied to uh, through the course of the day. And I think the average person tells something like 15 lies a day. They're, all, they're mostly minor lies. Oh, did you like the pot roast tonight? Oh, yeah, it was delicious, right? I mean, that's a lie. 
But is it a big lie? Is it an important lie? No. This tells you how to detect those big lies, those important lies, or how to lie with a straight face the way the CIA taught us to lie. You know, you, you have to live a lie. I remember my, uh, my first boss telling me at the CIA, we're going to teach you to lie, and we want you to lie all day long. But never lie to your boss. Never lie to medical, to finance, or to security, because they're the ones that can ruin your career. Mm. Try not to lie to your wife, he told me. But otherwise, you're going to be living a lie for the next 20 years. And he was right. So give folks a pro tip on lie detection. Uh, let's say they want to know if their spouse or their coworker or their child is, is lying to them. What, uh, what do they do? Well, there are a lot of things you can, you can look out for. Like um, the most obvious is deflection. You know, we used, we used to have this saying at the CIA – it was even emblazoned on coffee mugs. Admit nothing, deny everything, make counter accusations. Right? That's that's during interrogation. That's not to the liar to detect a lie. Um, it's just to protect yourself in an interrogation. But deflection is not just not answering a question, but not answering it and trying to change the subject. To do that repeatedly is indicative of a lie. Or little things like stuttering or repeatedly licking your lips, or looking up into the air as if you're reading something as you're thinking of, a, of an answer. It's, it's a book full of stuff like that. Well, it sounds fascinating. I can't wait to check it out. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the film The Negotiator with Samuel L. Jackson and uh, Kevin Spacey, but it's, uh, right. it, it, it's quite yeah. good. It's quite good. And they do one scene in that where Jackson uh, is a pretty seasoned police officer, and he's explaining his tricks for lie detection. If people haven't seen that film or are unfamiliar with the scene, here's a clip. I want you to look me in the eye, Nibon, right here. Tell me, when did you find out Nate was investigating the fund? I first found that Nathan was conducting the investigation after I spoke with you after he was killed. You're lying. And I know you're lying. Oh, you know it, huh? Well, you read my mind, Roman, is that it? No, I'm not. I'm reading your eyes. The eyes can't lie. Didn't you know what I was doing? A quick lesson in lying. See, this is what us real cops do. We study liars. Example. If I ask you a question about something visual, like your favorite color, and your eyes go up and to the left, well, neurophysiology tells us that your eyes go in that direction because you're accessing the visual cortex. Therefore, you're telling the truth. If your eyes go up and right, then you're accessing the creative centers of the brain, and we know you're full of How about it, John? Is there any truth to that? There is. There is truth to it, actually. You know, in training, when they're teaching us about lying and lie detection, they show us uh, quite a long video clip of testimony before the Massachusetts State Senate. Uh, the president of the University of Massachusetts back in the 1990s um, had been the majority leader of the state Senate. And he also happened to be Whitey Bulger's brother. And he claimed that you know, he didn't have any contact with his brother, that Whitey went bad and he went good and and they just didn't have anything in common. They didn't have any contact. And when he was being questioned before the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee about 
whether or not he had contact with his brother. He said nine ways from Sunday that he didn't, but every time he said it, he would look up and to the right. Mm. And that was that was one of the techniques that the security guys and the polygraphers taught us to be on the lookout for when we were questioning people because he was clearly lying. And at the time, the FBI knew he was lying, but they just couldn't prove it by saying, well, he keeps looking up and to the right. Like, you and I know that's a lie, but it's not enough to stand up in court. Wow. Uh, that's good to know. All right. So I learned something there from Samuel L. Jackson. What about a tip on getting away with a lie, whether you're lying about the quality of a pot roast or needing to lie to your boss and saying you're sick when you really want to go to a baseball game? Not that anybody should do that. But if if there's a situation where you need to get away with a lie, can you give us yeah. one pro tip there? And again, we want to encourage people yeah. to buy the book, Lying and Lie Detection. But give us one pro tip. <laughs> the the easiest tip is to keep it simple. Keep it as simple as possible. You know that old adage that it's easier to tell the truth because you don't have to keep the truth at the front of your mind. You know the truth is the truth. With lies, you have to remember the lies that you're telling. And that can be hard, even for people trained in this kind of thing. And so the easiest thing to do is to keep the lie as simple as possible, to keep the lie consistent, and then to double down if you have to. Wow. Uh, That's uh, good to know. Keep it simple. Don't elaborate. Don't add too much into that. All right. Before I let you go, have to ask you about a story that's gotten a lot of attention this week. Apparently, they discovered cocaine at the White House. I was of the opinion that the White House is a pretty secure spot and it would be difficult to do uh, to do something like get illegal drugs into the White House. Is this indicative of a serious security problem that they have over there? Um, it's indicative of a security problem. I'm not sure how serious it is. And, and I'll, I'll explain. I, I'm of several minds on this issue. First of all, you know, I, I worked with White House people for 20 years when I was in government, whether it was at the CIA or at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. These are the most arrogant people in America. They're smarter than you are. They're more important than you are, and they think they can get away with murder. So, you know, I was thinking about this today. First of all, it has to be a man, because women tend to wear dresses, even today, and dresses don't have pockets. Now, another thing that we learned is that the the little baggie of Coke was apparently found in the slat of a box that is set up outside every vaulted area, every every top-secret secure area where you have to put your phone in, right? You can't take a cell phone into a vaulted area. It's a security violation. So outside of every one of these secure offices, there's this box with slats in it, and you just stick your phone in a slat. Well, the Coke apparently was stuck to one of the phones. So it came out of somebody's pocket. It has to be a guy. Now, one of the things that they do in government, especially when you are cleared at the top secret SITK Gamma level, which we all were, is they tell you they can do random drug tests anytime they want. Frank, you know how many times I was drug tested in 20 years with a a top secret SITK gamma clearance? Zero times. Uh Zero. They just don't do drug testing. So number one, maybe they should. Number two, that baggie had to have fingerprints or thumbprints on it. And, um, you have to be fingerprinted 
as part of the top secret security clearance process. So if they really wanted to find out whose coke this was, they could have done it, you know, by the end of the day today. Really? So if they don't find out whose cocaine this is in a hurry, then they don't want to find out whose cocaine it is. Absolutely right. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, very quickly, you've said a great deal about torture and uh, torture at CIA black sites specifically. That is a big issue in a forthcoming uh, death penalty trial of Abd al-Rahim al-Nashiri. And this is one of the people that was implicated in the bombing of the USS Cole. And the judge, in his case, is going to decide whether the taint of CIA torture extended to this gentleman and well i don't want to call him a gentleman this terrorist when um he confessed at guantanamo bay what's your read on this situation should this confession be admissible in court i think no and let me preface it by saying abdurahim aneshadi is a very bad guy right he's a very bad man we know with 100% certainty that he was one of the masterminds of the USS coal bombing resulted in the deaths of, of 17 U.S. sailors, right? Very bad guy. But if we're going to be a nation ruled by, you know, the, the Constitution and governed by the rule of law, um, then then it, it just can't be used against him. He, he's been denied constitutional rights. From the day he was uh, he was picked up in wherever it was we picked him up in uh, Dubai or Pakistan or wherever I don't even remember anymore. It's been so many years, twenty one years. Um, look, even if we don't like his politics, and even if we think or we know that he's a terrorist, which he is, that doesn't matter. He still has the same constitutional rights that everybody else uh, has, and uh, he was denied those rights. Mm. He was tortured into confessing. And I think we should use what we've been able to collect independently. But I don't think that his confession should be admissible. Finally, John, uh, I'm supposed to speak with uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on this morning. And uh, he has been very vocal in saying that he believes the CIA played a role in the assassination of his uncle and maybe his father. I'm going to talk to him a little bit about it. But based on your knowledge of the CIA and your knowledge of those cases specifically, do you think there's any possibility that that occurred. Do you think the CIA may have played a role in one or both Kennedy assassinations? You know, it, it makes me sick to my stomach to say it, but I, I have to say, yeah, I do. Um, he and I have talked about this. He, he told me something that I, I told him was historically significant and that I thought he had to, he had to talk about it more. He said that on the, on the afternoon of November 22nd, 1963, about an hour after his uncle had been assassinated, his mother went to school to pick him up early, take him out of school. And she brought him home. And when he got out of the car, his father was standing in the driveway speaking with John McCone, who was the CIA director. The Kennedys and the McCones were very, very close friends. Um, John McCone's wife had died of cancer, and the Kennedys were worried about him. So he had dinner with the Kennedys literally every single night. And when Bob Jr. got out of the car, he heard his dad say to McCone, tell me your people didn't do this. And McCone said, I don't know who did it. Wow. He did not say, my people didn't do it. My people couldn't have done it. My people would never do it. 
He said, I don't know who did it. Wow. I, you know, I, my, my own conclusion is that I can't imagine, I can't fathom that this would have been a CIA operation to kill John F. Kennedy. But I can absolutely see that there were senior elements of the CIA, senior CIA officers who hated John Kennedy for not providing them with air cover during the Bay of Pigs, who would have been perfectly happy to take him out. John Kiriakou, on that note, we're going to have to end it there. I hope people check out the new book, Lying and Lie Detection, a CIA insider's guide. It's available through Skyhorse Publishing on Amazon and wherever people buy their books these days. Always a treat talking with you, John. Thank you. The pleasure's all mine. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Busted flat in Ben Rouge, waiting for a train. When I was feeling near as faded as my jeans. Bobby thumbed a diesel down just before it rained and rode us all the way into New Orleans. I pulled my harpoon out of my dirty red bandana. I was playing soft while Bobby sang the blues. Windshield wiper slapping time. I was holding Bobby's hand in mine. We sang every song that driving knew. Janis Joplin singing Bobby McGee. Uh, This song is actually a personal favorite of my friend Geraldo Rivera, who turned 80 years old on July 4th. Same birth date as America. Isn't that something? Happy birthday to Geraldo. It was uh, fun to see him last week, and uh, I am glad that he is doing well. It's interesting, um, you know, I've been talking about how my um, my cat is not doing well, my wife's cat, really, and it looks like he's probably on the last of his nine lives. They, they say at most he's probably got about 10 months to live, he has cancer, he's got diabetes, he's got a lot of issues, and one of the things they said to do is switch him to a raw food diet, which we have. The other thing they said to do was switch him, uh, is give him a probiotic. So my wife buys this probiotic through the veterinary clinic that she buys all the other cat drugs from. $50 for not a lot of pills. I think it's for about 30 tablets. $50. She goes on Chewy, which is where we buy our uh, cat food and stuff from. Same product, same number of tablets. $18. $18. Can you believe that? So the lesson is, if you get a crazy bill for some pet medication, whether it's a probiotic or a prescription, check elsewhere. Because if you shop around, you could save some money. All right. uh, Next hour, the AC Report and more. Until then, your Post Counts Music.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, it is interesting. I watched, uh, as we do just about every July 4th, we watched uh, 1776, and it was a lot easier to do on July 4th this year because it was raining almost the entire day. So it, we, you know, you're basically left with very few choices but to stay indoors. And the version that I'm watching has a lot of enhanced footage and expanded footage that wasn't available in the tape of the film 1776 that I grew up watching as a kid because I watched it so many times. I remember every word, every scene. So whenever there's a new scene that wasn't in that original version, I always take note of it. And one of the scenes that's in the version that's on, I think we bought it on Apple TV or Amazon Prime, is John Adams and Benjamin Franklin shouting to Thomas Jefferson's wife, Martha, played by Blythe Danner. They're both shouting to her, good morrow. They both say good morrow. So I got a big kick out of that. So those of you that are morrowholics, you can go ahead and watch that scene in 1776. Now, very exciting things happening, courtesy of a member of the Harvard faculty. Uh, we've talked to Har- um, Avi Loeb before. He's an astrophysicist, an author, a very well-respected scientist. He's a professor at Harvard. He's not a lunatic. And he has spent years studying the night skies for signs of extraterrestrial life. And now, Avi Loeb believes that he has actually found proof of their existence at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Avi Loeb has just completed a one and a half million dollar expedition searching for signs of a mysterious meteor dubbed IM1, IM1, that crashed off the coast of Papua New Guinea in 2014 and is believed to have come from interstellar space. The 61 year old uh, talked about he oversaw a team of deep sea explorers. And again, I can't stress this guy's academic bona fides enough. The man is very well respected in the uh, scientific community, very well respected in academia. And he oversaw a team of deep sea explorers who found these little molten droplets using a magnetic sled that was dropped from the expedition vessel, the Silver Star, two miles thereabouts underneath the surface of the ocean. And he believes 
the tiny objects, about half a millimeter in size, are most likely made from a steel-titanium alloy that's much stronger than the iron found in regular meteors. Further testing is obviously required, but Professor Loeb believes they either have interstellar origins or have been made by an advanced extraterrestrial civilization. So I want you to understand the significance of this. This is a meteor that everyone was making a big deal about, and he is saying that this could be essentially some sort of alien gadget or alien vessel. So Avi Loeb chaired Harvard's astronomy department from 2011 to 2020, and he now leads the Galileo Project there. We've talked not only to him, but other people from the Galileo Project as well, which is establishing open-sourced observatories across the world to search for signs of UFOs and interstellar objects. And he has long courted controversy for his belief that aliens have visited Earth. I spoke to him when his book came out, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. And in that book, he argued that Oumuamua, a pancake-shaped space rock about the size of a football field, which was visible to scientists for 11 days six years ago, could only have been an interstellar technology built by aliens. And his ideas have sort of set him at odds with much of the scientific community. But he's unapologetic about it. He has been dubbed the alien hunter of Harvard, and he basically says that his naysayers are arrogant to dismiss his findings. He appeared on News Nation uh, either last night or the previous night. I'm not clear when you when you when you do these shows at odd hours. It's not clear what's what. But he appeared on News Nation this week, and he was talking about the material that he found at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and why this is so significant. Listen to this. I found that it's easier to recover the truth about interstellar space from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean than it is from government. And the way we did it is by organizing a ship and going after the relics of a meteor that uh, was noticed by government sensors back in 2014, almost a decade ago. Uh, and it was unusual because it moved very fast. And we figured out that it was moving so fast, faster than the escape speed from the solar system. Therefore, it originated from interstellar space. And the government, the Department of Defense, actually confirmed it in a letter to NASA last year that at the 99.999%, this meteor originated from outside the solar system, faster than 95% of all stars in the vicinity of the sun. And also its material strength was tougher than all space rocks that NASA cataloged. 272 of them over the past decade. And that may have been uh, an artificial technological object. This is a very smart man. He has a PhD in plasma physics. He's been working at Harvard since 1993. And uh, this is a guy that became a PhD at the age of 24. And he is the author of more than a thousand research articles, eight books, and very well respected. And when a guy of his intellectual heft says that they might have found a piece of alien technology, I think you have to listen. 
He talks a little bit more about the materials that were found and how they were found under the ocean. To find out, we went to the Pacific Ocean, to the location. We pinpointed the location even better than the government did using seismometer data uh, near Papua New Guinea. And uh, the ocean is two kilometers deep and the region was 10 kilometers in size. And we were looking for droplets, molten uh, metal from the surface of this object when the fireball released uh, a few percent of the Hiroshima atomic bomb energy. And we found them. The amazing thing is that we found them. I just received the, the package with all the materials by FedEx a few hours ago. So what's this meteor, what, what's this material made out of? What is it? Okay, what's inside is a spheroid. This, this is like a metallic marble that we saw very distinct from the background of volcanic ash. Uh, you know, we saw a lot of black powder, but inside of it, with a microscope, we could find those metallic marbles. They are look like perfect spheres, uh, colored in uh, uh, blue or, uh, or uh, brown or gold, and, uh, and they're just beautiful. And they are the droplets from the molten uh, surface of this object that fell into the Pacific Ocean, roughly a millimeter in size. Each of them weighs a milligram. And uh, we were able to find them with a sled covered with magnets on both sides. So what do you think? Is he onto something here? Does his theory that this, this stuff at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean might actually be the remnants of alien spacecraft, does it have merit? I think it does. 800-848-9222. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we will go live to AC for the AC report with uh, Heather Fletcher from Bonus.com. Big shout out, by the way, to all of uh, our listeners on uh, Talk 1400 WOND, a great radio station that we're honored to be on all over South Jersey. Cape May, Atlantic City. A lot of people have been writing to me about Cape May ideas, suggestions for restaurants, hotels. Trust me, I'm a little behind on my email. I'm going to make an effort to get back to all of you. So uh, I appreciate the the interest and in that you would trust my judgment. 800-848-9222. The other thing of a celestial nature that I have to mention is the sun emitted a solar flare this week that was strong enough to cause radio blackouts on Earth. And apparently it did. NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory captured an image of the event which showed a bright flash in the top right area of the sun. The flare was classified as a X1.0 flare, which means that it is in the most intense class of of flares. And the flare peaked at 7.14 p.m. Eastern on July 2nd. It erupted It erupted from a sunspot that is seven times the width of the Earth. And such flares like this one, they disrupt radio signals, resulting in radio blackouts. So if you had an issue with your radio on July 2nd, in the evening, especially, it could have been due to this solar flare. And it resulted apparently in a deep shortwave radio blackout over western parts of the U.S. and the Pacific Ocean 
the blackout lasted about 30 minutes. So uh, it is interesting. It goes to show nature is just such a powerful thing. You never know what's going on. See, solar flares, which I don't know a lot about, but it is interesting. Solar flares are formed when magnetic fields around sunspots become tangled, break, and then reconnect. In some cases, like with this flare, plumes of plasma can also be part of the process. Solar activity like these flares has increased recently. The sun is in a particular solar cycle. We've gone over this with Dr. Sky. And at the beginning of the cycle, which lasts 11 years, the National Weather Service predicted peak sunspot activity would occur in 2025, with the overall activity of the cycle being fairly weak. However, in June of this year, just last month, researchers said they found the cycle had ramped up much faster than originally predicted, with more sunspots and eruptions than experts had forecast. So it's possible that solar flares could continue to have an impact on radio and Internet connections, as well as satellite and radio navigation systems. So you got to be on the lookout for this stuff. And this is why it may seem self-serving, but one of the things that you absolutely have to keep in your repertoire is a battery-operated radio. Now, obviously, if there's a blackout in radio activity, uh, maybe that's not the best way to be informed, but it's still important to have because we spend a lot of time talking about electromagnetic pulse, and usually that gets talked about in the context of a hostile actor trying to do something which causes a disruption of power and things like that. There's also a very real possibility of a naturally occurring electromagnetic pulse. So you just never know. Keep that battery-operated radio handy. That's the lesson. 800-848-9222. There's nothing quite like a solar flare. And whether it's fair or not, you know, that's what happens. All right. If you want to be fair to flare, then do it the way you're doing. But if you really want to be fair to flare, to be fair to flare, that's Don't the way to do it. Don't start with a fair to flare. If you uh, want to find us on Twitter, you can do so at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. I um, I'm not crazy about some of these changes they made at uh, Twitter. I always use something called TweetDeck, which I like a lot because it lets you tweet from multiple accounts. It lets you schedule your tweets it lets you have a bunch of different things on your screen at the same time and for whatever reason i had to log out of there and log back on and it totally screwed me up i don't know they're launching this new um service from meta which owns facebook and uh instagram and whatsapp and it's supposed to be a competitor to twitter it's called threads i'll tell you there's no way i'm downloading another app no way. There's just too much stuff to update and to do. So count me out of that one, at least for now. Maybe I'll change my tune if it looks like it's, it's. Uh, I don't know, if it's very easy and it's sweeping the nation. But for now, you know, uh, I'm doing the Twitter thing, the Facebook thing, and the uh, and the Instagram thing. And, and that's it. That's kind of where I'm at my limit. No more. I can't handle it. You could join 50 social medias and do nothing but update your social media account all day. Already, I feel like in terms of the content that I'm 
putting out there on social media. I feel like I'm I'm producing a second radio show just for social media. And it's really uh it's wearying. It's wearying. So you can find me on Facebook as well, Facebook.com slash Morano fan if you would like to do so. Facebook.com slash M O R A N O fan. All right. Uh, we'll get into all things gambling with Heather Fletcher from Bonus.com in a moment. We're going to get to as many calls of yours as we can, 800-848-9222. My thanks once again to Elias for helping us out as our telephone talent coordinator for the day, as Kenneth uh, sits in for Matt Blaze and Christian Matos uh, gives a helping hand in all the other things that Kenneth normally does as well. 800-848-9222. Heather Fletcher, bonus.com. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Well, they blew up a chicken man in Philly last night. And they blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state And the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on a promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fish your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. Time for our weekly look at the most interesting 48 blocks in America. And clearly, even though we focus on so many different aspects of the culture of Atlantic City, the uh, the food, the politics, the hist- history, the artwork, everything. Clearly, the one thing that a lot of people know Atlantic City from is the gambling and the casinos. And that has been a big part of Atlantic City's story, especially since 1978. But it's a funny thing that's happened over the course of the last I don't know, 15, 20 years. Back 18, 19, 20 years ago, Atlantic City was a huge gambling market. Look, if you didn't want to go to Las Vegas, it was really one of the few places on the East Coast that you can go and place some legal bets. And it was a $5 billion gambling market, maybe even more, $5.5 billion. But then something happened. More and more places started offering gambling. And at the same time, more casinos in Atlantic City started opening. So you could go and gamble in Connecticut. You can go and gamble in Maryland. You can go and gamble in Delaware. You can go and gamble in Pennsylvania. And you still have 12 casinos 
to gamble in Atlantic City. So in Atlantic City became, it went from being a $5 billion plus dollar gambling town to only taking in maybe 3 or $4 billion. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but when you're dividing that by 12 properties, it's not so much money, at least not if you're on the bottom end of that. So an interesting thing happened, a very sad thing happened. In 2012, five, count them, five of those 12 casinos closed. Five years ago, two of those properties reopened. The Hard Rock was formerly the Trump Taj Mahal, and the Ocean was formerly the Revel. Well, five years later, how are they doing? And how are they fitting into this whole Atlantic City gambling equation? Someone who has uh, done a lot of great reporting on this is Heather Fletcher. She's a journalist and the lead writer at Bonus.com, where she concentrates a great deal on online casino coverage. Heather, thanks so much for joining me. I know it's a tough time. I appreciate you being awake. Thank you. I thought I was going to get bumped by Mr. Bay there for a while. <laughs> hey, there are worse people to be bumped by, though, Heather. Definitely. And by the way, I was listening to your statistics on the lead-in. So I just pulled up the American Gaming Association. In 2022, those nine casinos, that there are now nine, not 12, uh, pulled in $5.21 billion in gross gaming revenue. Well, and I want to ask you a little bit about that because I know a lot of that is, uh, is involved in online gambling and maybe sports betting, but I want to ask you about that. But first, if people are unfamiliar with your work, Heather, uh, what exactly is bonus.com? Sure. Um, so it is a gambling affiliate website. So what we do is there are journalists like me who are bifurcated from the uh, revenue side, which is um, advertising in the straight sense of the word, but in a an affiliate sense, it is we are driving qualified leads to um, these gambling operators. I personally am segregated from that and covering news, so I'm not a salesperson. Gotcha. Um, and by the way, going back a bit, the five point two one billion, that's only retail. That's not online. Oh really? That's okay. Com- Interesting. Yeah, that's the commercial casinos. Got it. Now, um so the we've now are observed the five year anniversary of Hard Rock and Ocean. I was there when they opened and it was a tremendous sense of optimism. Some people though were warning that, okay, no, we have seven casinos now to add another two. Uh, it will kind of upset the equilibrium and cut into what all the casinos are doing. Five years later, Heather, how has it worked out with um, the ocean and the hard rock? Have they been able to um, not not cannibalize the existing gaming revenue? How have they fit into the whole Atlantic City community? That's a great question. So they uh, were originally considered newcomers and people expected them to really take advantage of online gambling, which uh, in New Jersey, it's one of the oldest markets. So that's 10 years old there. Um, And what happened is they actually excelled in retail casino. So they went the opposite of what people expected. 
and took market share away from other casinos, most notably Borgata. Well, uh, so it sounds like Borgata, I know, is still at the top of the heap. They're celebrating their 20th anniversary this summer. I was there not at the opening weekend, but I was there 20 years ago, and they're still doing very well. They're still number one. Why is, after 20 years, when you would think maybe people's tastes change and they want to try something different, in your view, Heather, why is the Borgata still so dominant after 20 years? There are two reasons. Number one, a lot of these retail casinos have continued to invest in their properties. That may also be because they're feeling the pinch of possible competition from New York. There are about to be three downstate casino licenses awarded. Um, The other aspect is that you've got a new influx of the type of consumer who's interested in online, but you can also be attracted to retail through the loyalty program. So what I mean by that is um, there's a demographic that goes to a retail casino in general, older, um, and online casino is a younger demographic. Um, Online casino is also more female. Um, sports betting is more male. Really? That's a, that's a trivia, an aspect of trivia for you. Um, so what happens is you've got new blood coming in. So that always adds to revenue. Um, just to go back to the issue, though, of casino competition within Atlantic City, not necessarily from other jurisdictions, is Atlantic City showing, with the numbers that you referenced earlier, is Atlantic City showing that it can handle nine casinos, or, or is nine too much? So it looks like it can maintain nine. It also looks like it needs to continue to have um, new money come in. So that is going to be one of the challenges for uh, the attraction of um, gamblers to that area that I think that everybody has been feeling because I've reported on aspects where the mayor is talking about how there are going to be new security cameras. You know, the main thing is retention. Um, And if you've got people scared of your area, they're not going to come. So the mayor um, is talking about safety. The governor is talking about how strong the casinos are. And it's something that is brought up every year at the East Coast Gaming Congress um, that the area matters Mm -hmm. to gambling. So you can talk about all kinds of competition in every other state, um, but People still think of Atlantic City as a resort, a place to come and gamble. No, no, I I certainly think of it uh, that way. Talking with Heather Fletcher from Bonus.com. It was interesting when we saw last week the five-year anniversary of both the Ocean and the Hard Rock. I was very interested to go on Facebook and see competing properties, casinos that are owned by other companies, notably resorts, go online and publicly give a shout-out 
to the ocean and the hard rock. Happy fifth birthday to our incredible North Beach Atlantic City partner. Now, I remember the days when Donald Trump and Steve Wynn were battling like crazy about trying to keep one another, keeping one another from opening and insulting one another in the press because the casino competition was so fierce. Is this a new era in Atlantic City where all the casinos sort of have a vested interest in seeing all the other casinos do well, or are they just disguising the competition a bit better? That I don't know, but I can tell you that there are aspects of um, Trump and when that I think that a lot of these casinos are trying to get away from. So I don't know that they want to have um, a sort of bitter uh, outward face um, but for instance, another aspect of trivia is that when is battling an aspect of being considered a Chinese spy. Um, so these are things that you don't necessarily want associated with your business. Correct? Really? So, yeah, I wouldn't think so, especially these days. <laughs> so I would definitely defer to the people who are um who I, I I think of it as Kanj, and I'm going to look up the actual um, spelling of that organization. I believe they're the ones who could talk about public relations regarding. Yes, <laughs> I will check that out. Um, you are covering the online gambling world better than or more, as thoroughly as anybody. What role is online gaming playing? with respect to the Atlantic City casinos right now? So the top three names in online casino are probably familiar to you too. BetMGM, DraftKings, FanDuel. So if you have those brands on TV and on people's phones, those are top of mind. And as it relates to coming to Atlantic City, they then get those loyalty. Uh, they get the promos and different things that say come to the casino and play. So what, did I answer your question? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, for um, well, well, so I know DraftKings and FanDuel are primarily sports. Does BetMGM allow online gaming beyond sports? Oh, all of the major... Um, so, by the way, going back, the Casino Association of New Jersey is, the, is who I would talk to about um, public perception of the industry. Gotcha. So, um, so all of the operators have um, casino faces as well, almost all. I mean, there are a few that don't. But you wouldn't expect, for instance, point, points bet just by the name of it. To have a casino, but they do. Hmm. Interesting. Bet, Bet Rivers, Bet MGM, FanDuel, DraftKings, they all have casino faces. It's just that there aren't as many casino states. New Jersey is a major one. Um, and I can list the rest if you're interested. Um, well, I'm interested in how much of the business that these casinos in Atlantic City are doing is made up of online gambling versus uh, you use the term retail gambling, people that are going there in person 
to gamble like I do from time to time. How much is online versus in person? It is a much smaller share, and yet it's receiving an awful lot of attention. But um, yes, it's a much smaller share of revenue. For instance, um, if you take a look at those who we're talking about, Hard Rock and Ocean, um, they for iGaming, they have Hard Rock has three point six percent of market share, and Ocean has two point one percent. Ah, um, and so if you talk about retail, Ocean had 96 million in gross operating profit, up 5.5% from a year earlier. Um, so in 2022, Ocean had that much from retail. And it's a smaller percentage from online. So if you, if I were to give you an example of um, as as state's revenue for online casino, it's hardly ever outside of um, three figures and three, so 150 million, 170 million per month. Retail often goes beyond that. Wow. Okay. Good. No, that's, uh, that is interesting. I saw that Governor Phil Murphy uh, signed a five-year extension of online gaming. What what does this mean? Why did there need to be an extension of online gaming? Was online gaming initially approved only for a set amount of time? It's that way in every state. Um, New Jersey had a longer window because it was the first. Well, Delaware was as well, but... Uh, so 10 years was considered a test period and because there's been heightened attention on online gambling, um, different states are looking at how they want to renew it. And New Jersey surprisingly had some controversy about it. Um, I say surprisingly because it's one of the most established um, markets in the country, and it's not what anybody in the industry expected from New Jersey. Um, so there was one part of the legislature that was going to just renew for another decade, and another said two years, so they compromised for five. In, in terms of the future of um of online gaming are casinos betting that it's going to be a much bigger deal in the future or are they thinking that the proportion of people that participate in online gaming versus in-person retail gaming is going to be pretty similar to what it is now it's definitely supposed to grow it was surprisingly um not it it did exist but there was only one state that added online casino and it was Rhode Island. So one of the forecasts from the beginning of the year did come true. Um, BetMGM's Adam Greenblatt said that in January that there weren't going to be any legalizations. Um, Rhode Island did become the eighth. So there are far more sports, sports books across the country. Mm. But um, because um, of that, because of two things that related to controversy about the situation. Um, the first one that Adam Greenblatt 
mentioned was cannibalization concerns from a lot of legislators. Um, and what I mean by cannibalization is uh, legislators were concerned that retail casinos were going to lose revenue because the uh, gamblers were going to want to be on the apps instead. But it's a, it's a different demographic entirely. Um, so those of us who look at it, I'm not... I'm not taking one side or the other sure. here. I'm looking at I'm looking at what people actually do, and the the people who are on these apps are younger than the average retail uh, better. Gotcha, gotcha. So, um, and the pandemic also really showed that it showed the difference. But um, so what happened? is the cannibalization concern caused a lot of the legislatures to uh, forego approving it. So Illinois, um, you name it. Uh, some of the places with really big, oh, of course, New York. <laughs> I know you care about New York. And um, Senator Adabo worked, and, and Assemblyman Putlow worked really hard on that, and it didn't get anywhere this, again this year, iGaming. So um, what happened beyond that is on November 20th, 2022, the New York Times ran a, a, a bunch of articles that were critical of the legal online gambling industry, not the illegal one, right. the legal one. <laughs> and um, so what happened is a lot of the legislators then took a closer look at the legal online gambling industry, which I'm sure is is there's always a way to improve everything, right? Obviously, also a way for me to improve my speaking. <laughs> so, you you um, and me both, believe, believe, <laughs> believe me. I, I think you, you sound great. But so, uh, um, go ahead. Yeah, I think that I think that looking at Atlantic City, that is, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Well, that's encouraging as someone that likes to likes to go. Um, speaking of Atlantic City, one of the things they're doing is trying to branch out beyond casino gaming. Uh, we've talked about Stockton University and what that's meant to the town. A bunch of other things. There's a burgeoning restaurant and food scene. And on Tuesday, on the 4th of July, the Atlantic City Water Park opened at Showboat. The original opening was delayed because of some permit issues. And now this $100 million island water park in Atlantic City is now open. Do you think this is going to be successful at uh, attracting more families, more families to Atlantic City? And is this going to, is this going to work? This is a pretty big bet that the developer Bart Blatstein has placed on this water park. How do you think it's going to work out? People bring their kids everywhere. I, I could easily picture that working, but the funny thing that that made me think of is I look at procedural aspects of the city all the time, right? And one of them is that there's going to be um, a new bar added to one, I believe it's Ocean. I could look back at that, but it's the rum shack that's next to the, the pool. So when you told me it was a... Um, you know, are people going to bring, are people going to come out to a water park? Of course, <laughs> like they're going, it's, it's, they're coming to the ocean. They're coming to the shore. They're, 
going to go. Yeah, I'm excited. I don't know if- I'm excited. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be. I, I'm, I hope it's going to do really, really well. I can't wait to go, uh, Heather. Let me end with the most controversial question I ask every guest in this in this segment. If you had to pick, absolutely had to pick, irrespective of cuisine, what is your absolute favorite restaurant in Atlantic City? Yeah. Uh, so, hmm. <laughs> anything by the water. Anything by the water. Help. Anything by the water. The, for me, the, the ocean is the attraction there. There you go. Make Makes sense to me. Heather Fletcher, you could read her work in bonus.com. Heather, appreciate you uh, spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Heather Fletcher, bonus.com. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. of Philadelphia, a guy that knows Atlantic City and Philadelphia quite well, no doubt. 800-848-9222. Going to get to your questions uh, and your thoughts, comments in a moment. 800-848-9222. You know, one of the things when you have sort of an odd sleep schedule, it's difficult to just go to sleep normally. So on, on July 4th, one of the things that I actually had the opportunity to do after the fireworks finally ended, my goodness, were these fireworks out of control. I mean, it was just impossible. E- even friends of mine, neighbors of mine that love these fireworks were, were talking about how loud these fireworks were and how many there seemed to be this year. But or whatever, I've railed for, I've railed on and on about that. I'm, I'm over it. I'm moving on. But I came home and I still wasn't tired yet. So I figured, all right. Maybe I'll try and put on a motion picture. And I saw a film that I haven't seen in at least 25 years. I watched The Toxic Avenger. Have you seen The Toxic Avenger? It is kind of the 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 film that put trauma on the map. It's uh it's a horror comedy. 
it's ridiculous. I mean, it's super low budget. It's 40 years old now. And it's a it's a black comedy. It's very much a splatter film. It's too it's so silly, but it is a cult classic. And it spawned all of the toxic Avenger sequels. And I think there were I'm not sure how many there were. I think there were at least six of them. But now I think that they're actually doing a big budget remake of the toxic Avenger. I think Kevin Spacey is one of the villains. And uh, at one point, Arnold Schwarzenegger was attached to it. I'm not sure if he's going to be in the new version of it. But I I still really enjoyed it. And I remembered remembered a, uh, a great deal about the film. But watching it now, decades later, it's just so cheesy and so much fun. I thought it was I thought it was terrific to watch. Especially on a holiday weekend, it's a lot of fun. It's available on. Um, I watch. I get the Netflix DVDs still, so I watched it on DVD on Netflix. That service is apparently ending at the end of September. I hate that. I love that service, but I am uh, hoping that somebody buys their DVD by mail service. So we'll see where it goes. Uh, so that was my big experiment over the weekend: is seeing if I still enjoyed the Toxic Avenger as much as an adult as I did as a young person. And turns out I did. And why I was watching that film 30 years ago, probably, probably not appropriate, but uh, it was still enjoyable this many decades later. And my wife had never seen Bullworth, which I just love that picture. If you've not seen it, it's Warren Beatty at his best, Halle Berry at her best, Paul Servino in a very pivotal supporting role, a lot of other great cast members as well. And it's about a senator, basically, who's very much an establishment Democratic senator. And then he basically decides to he goes crazy and decides to start telling the truth. And there's rapping involved and uh, Don Cheadle's in it. I've always loved the picture from the moment I saw it. And in fact, that movie was so popular in the mid to late 90s that there was a movement to get Warren Beatty to run for president in the year 2000, either as a Democrat against Al Gore and Bill Bradley in the primary or as a third-party candidate. Ultimately, obviously, he decided not to run. But I thought my wife would really enjoy this film, and she didn't like it as much as I thought she would. She thought it was uh, a little repetitive at times, and, uh, you know, she didn't seem crazy about the, the ending. I thought she would be much more into it than she ultimately was so there's that all right 800-848-9222 if you want to comment tony is in new jersey hello tony how you doing frank uh you're talking about atlantic city uh i have a couple things i thought might help out a little bit what about bringing broadway plays to atlantic city and have like a like during the week maybe you have a uh a layover where they go see a play and then could stay at night and maybe do a little gambling too if they wanted to, and, and maybe have like a, a bus system where you could drop your car off at Meadowlands for, for New Yorkers, people up north, and and take a bus to Atlantic City, and and have this this little ticket discount, you know, and have the uh, Broadway shows because, you know, my wife and I used to go to New York to see shows, but I don't want to go to New York anymore. It's really, uh, really dangerous and very expensive. 
Well, first and, uh, of all, you're exactly right on the expense front. I'm still paying off uh, taking um, my wife and my sister to see a show for her birthday a few months ago. It's qu- crazy expensive, especially if you want to eat anything. I actually love your idea. They do do something um, similar to that, not with the transportation component, but with the Broadway shows. They do something called Broadway on the Boardwalk where they have the cast of Broadway shows sing songs and they're doing um they have Chicago now and uh Oklahoma Jersey Boys and uh, people can learn more about it at doacbroadway.com but I'd love to see a full show I think you're right I think for a lot of people that uh, don't want to necessarily make the trip into Manhattan but still want to see popular broadway shows i think it's a great idea and if they don't want to travel to london to see the performances there i think it's a great idea and uh look a lot of people listening in atlantic city now and in new york in the theater community and in the uh, atlantic city community a lot of people i think will like that idea tony well done i'm all for that but uh yeah it's doacbroadway.com if you're interested in that uh and all the shows are free and located at Kennedy Plaza, right on the uh, on the boardwalk. It's really, really kind of neat. Like, um, let's see, it's uh, usually on. It's usually on Saturday night. So next Saturday, they have Jersey Boys and Rock of Ages performances, and then they have Tootsie the following week, King Kong Alive and on Broadway, and Beetlejuice. This is actually not a bad. This isn't giving me an idea of something to do next time we make a trip there. All right. Uh, I did want to mention, I had explained how my office is uh, just a mess. And I'd also explain how I had lost some scratch-off lottery tickets. Well, not lost, but I wasn't able to find some scratch-off lottery tickets that my mother had given me a few weeks ago. Actually, now it's maybe a month and a half ago. Well, my sister-in-law and her husband are staying in my office, which also doubles as a guest bedroom, next week. So my wife, while I was at work a couple days ago, she, or asleep, cleaned my whole office. And she did an incredible job. I forgot what my desk actually looked like, because it was so, it's usually so covered in, in stuff. So anyway, she finds these lottery tickets. And First of all, she was pretty annoyed because she also found a whole bunch of un- of bills and notices that are in some cases years old that I hadn't responded to. And most of them are bills that I had paid. But, you know, she reacts poorly. She says this red light traffic violation, this parking ticket, this was not a pleasant um, afternoon to wake up to when with her asking all these questions about all these unpaid bills Hi, and honey. in some cases paid bills. So anyway. I said, this is great. I found these lottery tickets. Now I can use the lottery winnings to pay these bills. I couldn't find a coin. Couldn't find a coin anywhere. So I go into my bedroom. I said, I got to have a coin somewhere. I find a coin that Brock Pierce gave me three years ago. Brock Pierce is a cryptocurrency billionaire, former child actor. I said, that's great. This is good luck. It's a Brock Pierce coin. He's a billionaire. I'll scratch off these lottery tickets. I'll make some money. Sure enough, there must have been... Fifty dollars worth of tickets there. I did not win a cent, not a cent. So, still working. Here we are. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. The story I am about to bring to your attention is apparently true. I thought for sure it was a joke or a parody or one of the or misinformation that social media users like to share with one another. Unfortunately, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent. I want to warn you, this will sound like I made this up. This is real. In the state of California, they have a task force to study the issue of reparations. And they came back with a rather large amount of money that the state of California should be doling out to black residents in order to pay reparations. And essentially, Gavin Newsom, the governor there, indicated that he could not afford that amount of money. So they're still at it. They're making their recommendations and so forth. And now the California Reparations Task Force is asking the legislature to, one, Eliminate interest on past due child support, as well as any back child support debt for black residents of the state. So in its final report, understand this, in its final report released last week, the group, the Reparations Task Force, claimed discriminatory laws have torn African-American families apart, and that one effect of that is the harms caused by the disproportionate amount of African-Americans who are burdened with child support debt. The nearly 1,100-page document stated that black Californians represent a larger percentage of those who owe child support debt than their proportion of the state population. It also claimed the 10% interest the state charges on back child support hinders their ability to finance further education, attend job training, find employment, and maintain housing because of the legal consequences of not paying such debt. I would love to know, I would love to have been in the meeting where somebody on this reparations task force said, you know what? I've got a good idea. 
if we can't afford just direct payments, what about just canceling child support? I would love to have been in the meeting and see everyone around the table and find the person that says, yeah, that's a good idea. This has got to be in a country, in a state, on an issue that's filled with ludicrous ideas. This has got to be the most inane, insane, obscene idea that I have ever heard. Now, I happen to not be in favor of reparations, but I can understand why people make an argument the other way. I don't agree with it, but I can understand it. This is crazy to say that if you're black and you are a deadbeat dad and you've fallen behind on your child support payments, you don't have to pay them because black people were also slaves 200 years ago and subjected to many discriminatory uh, laws in the South 60 or 70 years ago. This is way out of line but if you're white you still have to pay the back child support with interest this is crazy also the whole idea of reparation is to help black people because they've been historically disadvantaged i get it but if you're a child whose father has let's say you're a black child whose father has abandoned your family and left to go do whatever. And now your mother is not going to be able to afford to take care of you. And she's not going to be able to spend the necessary amount of time with you because she's got to go work extra jobs to make up for the money that your father is not contributing. How is that black child helped by letting a deadbeat dad get away with not paying child support. The thing that amazes me is that this made it into the final report. I could understand people come up with crazy ideas from time to time. You throw it against the wall, you see what sticks. I am amazed that the members of the task force, the majority of them, thought, oh, good, yeah, that's a good idea, that'll work. Let people not pay child support if they're black. This is absolutely crazy. And the fact that this idea, when it was brought up, wasn't immediately laughed out of town, it befuddles me. So what I would love to do, what I would love to do is, if you think this is a good idea to, as the Reparations Task Force in the state of California has suggested, to allow people that owe child support to have their debt waived and to not charge interest on the money that they owe these children that they chose to bring into this world. I want to put you to the front of the line because you've got to explain it to me. And I'm not going to argue with you. I just want to hear an honest case for how you think This is A, a good idea, B, how this is fair to anyone, white people, 
children, and C, you've got to explain how allowing a deadbeat dad to get away with not paying child support helps that black child. I mean, to me, this is just crazy. This is just crazy. And the governor of the state of California, who I think appointed the members of the task force, although the legislature may have also had a role in picking some of these task force members, he needs to come out and say this is crazy because this cannot be left unchallenged. This is insane. Give me a call. 800-848-9222 and tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. This I, I cannot understand. So the um, report is a culmination of two years of research done by the task force into what it says is the historical discrimination faced by black Californians and their ancestors in the state. It also offers a broad account of the ways it accuses the state of wronging descendants of black slaves. The state legislature will now determine what aspects of the report, including monetary compensation for black residents, it will approve or deny. Count me among those that think this aspect should be denied. 800-848-9222. And here's the other thing that bothers me about this, and then I'll go right to your calls. The other thing that bothers me about this is, you know, I follow this thing called um, Ground News, where you could see what story, ground.news, and you could see what stories the left is not reading and what stories the the right is not reading. Um, for instance, there's, you know, there's all sorts of stories that... Um, None of the right-wing outlets are covering. There's all sorts of stories that none of the left-wing outlets are covering. So, um, you know, for instance, the Ben and Jerry's calling for a return of stolen indigenous land on a 4th of July message. That's a story that's read by very few on the left. Joe Biden heading to South Carolina to show his economic agenda is is uh, keeping even red states humming. That's not being read by a lot of people on the right. This story about this reparations child support is a total blind spot for the left. And the people, the left wing media outlets aren't covering this story. Why? How can you not cover this story? This task force has been at work for two years under the auspices of the state government, funded by the state. All the work they're doing is paid for by the state. And this is the brilliant idea they came up with. Let people not pay child support. This should be major news. It is major news. It also happens to be crazy. 800 if you're in favor of this, you need to let Kenneth know so we can put you to the front of the line. We have a lot of mics on the line, 800-848-9222, although, you know, Ken, Elias has gotten people's name wrong before, so who knows if they're really mics or not. We'll begin with Mike in Pennsylvania. Mike, most important question, are you really a mic? 
Yes, I am, Mike. I've spoken to you many other times. All right, all right. Well, tell me your thoughts on this, Mike. Frank, what it is is these mothers collected welfare, and it's the city that goes after the fathers for the money. So it's part of reparation. In other words, that mother already got the money, and the father's supposed to pay back the city or the state, whoever gave her the welfare. And what they're doing is they're saying, okay, if you're black, you don't got to pay us back because you got a bad shake. And that's why that's why that's happening that way. And I want to just know one thing. When the Japanese were put in internment camps and they lost their businesses and all, where is their reparation? Well, they got reparations. President Reagan gave them reparations. What kind of reparations did he give them? Uh, uh, talking... They would. They right. got three point. They got three point nine billion dollars. Really, I never even knew that. To uh, eighty two thousand Japanese Americans, it, it was that's adjusted for inflation. So by nineteen ninety two, they gave out one point six billion, and adjusted for inflation thirty years later, that would be almost four billion today. I tell you, you're a very very up to date man, there, Frankie. Well, but Mike, I, I, but, yeah, go ahead. What were you gonna say? But, but that, no, but that's what they're doing. In other words, in other words, the, the deadbeat dads don't have to pay. Right, but Mike, and, you know, yeah, yeah. And thank, thank you for the call, Mike. Two quick things. One, I, you know, those folks that got reparations for being put in internment camps—not just the Japanese, by the way, but uh, some Italian fa- uh, uh, families as well—they should get reparations. And just like if you were a slave, you should get reparations. But no one who was a slave is alive today. No one who had a slave in this country is alive today. So to give a whole bunch of money to people that were never enslaved and have it be paid for by people who never had slaves doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But. I understand how people can disagree with that. I get it. A lot of people point out Jim Crow. They point out redlining. They point out a lot of other more recent issues of institutional racism beyond just slavery. I get all that. I understand. I don't agree with it, but I I understand where you're coming from. What I cannot understand is how you could let a deadbeat dad get away with shortchanging his own children just because he's black. That is obscene. 800-848-9222. Mike is on Staten Island. Hello, Mike. Yeah, how are you doing, Frank? Um, uh, if, if reparations went technically the right way, reparations means to repair or to make whole. So that means if we did pay reparations... The division of racism would would be gone. We would be absolved of of slavery. Okay. Well, so um, and w- when you say we, I guess you're not black. I'm Italian. Okay. Um, well, you know, some Sicilians could very easily be uh, be black, but. Um, you see, so what's your take on this proposal from the reparations task force? Uh, I, I'm not sure I'm totally for any reparations. All, uh, all, all the, the only point I'm trying to make is 
technically we would be absolved of slavery. Right. Uh, thank you, Mike. I think um, I think kind of we're absolved of slavery as it is. I mean, a lot of people died fighting to end slavery in the Civil War. I mean, don't those lives lost, which I know the Civil War had a lot of other causes beyond just slavery, but that was the linchpin of it. Doesn't that count for something? I mean, I think those reparations have been paid in blood by a lot of folks. But again, none of those people are alive today. I just think um, it's but again, I think we're getting off the beaten path. The issue is this as reparations, no child support. That's reparations. It's not. It's letting someone get away with being a deadbeat dad because they happen to be black. And it's wrong. 800-848-9222. Third Mike's a charm. Mike in New Jersey. Hello. Yeah, I'm 100% for it. And I'll tell you why. Because if it's denied, black people are going to say, again, white racism. So why should we be held as the bad ones for not wanting it? Give it to them. And then let's see what the consequences are when all these black mothers come to come to the um, governor's office or whoever it is who's trying to put this through. And, and let's see them start screaming and yelling and deal with the black mothers and their black children who aren't going to get the money they need to support them. You know, let them be the one who do the fighting. You, 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 you don't want up, to fight somebody else's battle. You, thank you, Michael. You bring up a very good point, which is can you imagine the level of outrage that would take place if you said to a mother, it doesn't matter the race of the mother, black, white, whatever, that, hey, you know, you're not owed that back child support anymore because the father of your child is black and as part of reparations, we don't have to, he doesn't have to pay. Can you imagine the outrage? Justifiably so. Richard is in Texas. Hello, Richard. Good morning. How are you? I am uh, just, I am just dandy. I'm doing great. Just trying to figure out how to uh, do a radio show without a manual. Uh, Midland, Texas, Permian Basin, where the air is unbelievably good, oil and gas country. It is amazing how good the air is in oil and gas country. It is truly remarkable. But getting on to the serious subject, I've seen the tapes, I've seen the news of these people. These people are black, radical, Marxist, communist, whatever you want to call them, and to top it off, they are systemic racists. I have never seen such horrible human beings take the podium and try to justify a giveaway of money. And they want $1.2 million apiece. But that's some of them. A lot of them want $30 million, $20 million, $40 million. I mean, do you realize as bad as slavery was, and it was bad, the Holocaust for World War II, the Jewish people and everyone else in those concentration camps, it was actually even worse. And I guess maybe uh, the German government and whoever else was involved in that, maybe those people should get $100 million. R- Richard, but let's bankrupt y- everybody. Y- uh, you know, again, I, I, don't, I don't want to get into uh, comparing 
levels of of tragedy slavery versus the holocaust and then you know uh, every every then i'm sure we'll have an american indian person uh, call in about the the trail of th- tears and the theft of manhattan and then we'll have someone who's armenian call in about the armenian genocide every group has uh, some tragedy in their history i don't want to get into comparing which is worse but i think this aspect of this proposal the a failure to enforce child support and claim that it's due to that's part of reparations. It makes no sense uh, on any level. It doesn't help anybody Ada, except the person who now doesn't have to pay child support. That's the only person helped in this uh, in this scenario. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. John is in the boogie down Bronx. Hello, John. Is it John or Tyrone? Uh, it, it's uh, whoever you claim you are. Who are you? Okay, I think it happened last night, too. Okay, I agree with it because it's an 1,100-page document. This is only a tiny portion of it. The reason those guys are not paying, black guys mostly, because they don't have jobs, okay? That's why they get behind. If you're going to hold that against them when you go looking for a job, oh, you owe child support, now you're not going to get this job. So if you don't get the job, how then are you going to start to pay? So we have to just be uh, considerate and get those people a job, take that off their record. That's well, what I'm saying. But then so I agree he, with that portion of it. Here, Here's the issue. And is it Tyrone or John? It's Tyrone. Tyrone. OK, so the the issue that I have is that. Uh, everything you said just made sense. Everything you said made sense about uh, looking for a job, not being able to get a job, and that's why you fall behind. I get all that. My issue is a white or a Hispanic resident of California might very easily be in the same situation. So why should they not get to benefit from this same level of child support amnesty that a black resident gets to benefit from? They should get it, but under, dispar- under a different name. This is reparations for slavery, and it still exists today, Frank. I don't care how brilliant you are, and you are brilliant. This matter still is with us. That's why the nation is going down, because we have not absolved, as the Italian man called and said, we have not absolved ourselves of it. It was 10 million blacks in slavery. Uh, so I, I, first of all, I never claim to be uh, brilliant at all, Tyrone. So the you would, if you were in charge of of granting the wishes of the the reparations task force, you would say for anybody that's behind on their child support, black or white, we nobody now has to pay what they owe. But for black people, we're calling it for reparations. For all the other races and ethnicities, we're just going to call it something else? No, do something else to solve, resolve it, not just call it something else. See, when you say the word, I get it, I get it, I know that, but I get it. I get it doesn't solve the problem. You have to come up with a solution, and that's what these people are trying to do. They're not perfect. So they right. come up in an 1,100-page document. You see one tiny little thing that makes some sense. Yes, they shouldn't. They should pay their rep. I mean, their uh, back. But they can't if you don't have a job, and that's being held against you when you go for employment. Oh, you owe back child uh, uh, support. We're not giving you this job. Tyrone, though, if 
someone, any father, knows that they won't be held to account for bringing a child into this world, don't you think that would create a perverse disincentive where these folks wouldn't take responsibility for their children, at even a broader degree, if they know they don't have to pay? No. No, that makes no sense. What you're saying is drawn out and convoluted. I, I don't think Nobody so. I don't think child. so. Well, let me finish and Go tell ahead. you why. Let me give me a chance. Go ahead. Nobody has a baby 90% of the time thinking, oh, I'm going to have this baby and I won't have to pay repar- uh, 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 any child support for it. That's ridiculous. Nine, most of the time we have babies, we wasn't even thinking about having the baby. Well, that's but exactly it's right, though. Of our action. That's it's a consequence of our action. Tyrone, thank most you. Thank you, Tyrone. I, that's the, exactly the problem. You're not thinking. So, but if you see that you're, that you're already paying child support for two other children, do you think you're a little bit more likely to be a little bit more responsible when you have sex with someone? I would think you would be. But to let these men off the hook when they already owe significant amounts of child support, I think creates what economists would call a moral hazard where they would feel no qualms about taking additional responsibility. 800-848-9222. Melvin in the Bronx will give you the last word on this. Hello, Melvin. This is just a tip of the iceberg. Because number one, there's a case in California this year where a family, a black family, had to fight for over 100 years, a whole century, to get their beachfront property back from Los Angeles County, who seized their property on the eminent demand because they didn't want no black family owning no property on a beach waterfront. And this whole country benefited from slavery due to Wall Street, which paid off the last bondage issue on slavery in 1933. So therefore, Yes, reparations do, long overdue, because the land um, that we live on right now, National Republic, was created. There was people living here. And then they brought Africans out of Africa and changed. Only five out of every hundred, they took out Africa came to the English-speaking United States. So why the other 95 come over here? Because we fought to create right. the NAACP and Urban League is still in business. All right, Mom. So- Thank you, Mom. I, uh, it's just, uh, he's difficult to follow when he gets worked up. But... Uh, I want to mention two things. I neglected to wish Joe from Ronkonkoma a happy birthday two days ago on uh, Tuesday, on July 4th. It was his birthday. I hope he had a great birthday. Joe is a great listener who I've met in person, um, and he seems like a great guy as well. Big supporter of our show from the beginning. Very devoted uh, to his family as well, and uh, a wonderful guy that uh, I enjoy having as a listener and a caller. So, Joe from Ronkonkoma, uh, I hope you had a great birthday. I hope all your wishes came true. And you must be a pretty big deal because they gave most people off for your birthday and they had fireworks all over the place. So you might be you might be a much bigger deal than people realize. Also, want to thank uh, Jeff Schilling, a listener to our show, who actually was kind enough to send me a Star Trek pizza cutter. You know, a pizza wheel in the shape of the Enterprise. I mean, how cool is that? 
As he pointed out, he said it combines two of my favorite things, the original series and pizza. Now, you can imagine how thrilled my wife was after just cleaning out my office and lecturing me on how I have to stop acquiring things to then get one more tchotchke. But it is really neat. So thank you, Jeff. That was uh, very generous. We're going to talk to Brian Kilmeade. In a couple of minutes, but first, we're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. If you are the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, we're going to give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that, then you will be $1,000 richer. But first, you got to be the seventh caller now to 800-848-9222, minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. It lingered there to touch your hair and walk with me. All summer long we sang a song and then we strolled. That golden sand Two sweethearts And the summer wind The great Frank Sinatra singing Summer Wind. All right, it is time for us to try and give away some money. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Edward is in North Jersey. Hello, Edward. Hello. Edward, uh, have you heard this contest before? Uh, Yes, a number of times. Okay, great. You know what to do then, right? I'm ready for it. Yep. All right, let's, let's do it. What month does Independence Day take place? July. What does a meteorologist predict? The weather. What actor starred in the Die Hard films? Bruce Willis. What's the name of the social network owned by Donald Trump? Social Truth. We'll take it. Who, social. That's good, yeah. Who flew the first airplane? The Wright Brothers. Who is the biological father of Hercules? Zeus. Who did Muhammad Ali beat to become heavyweight champion in 1964? Oh, man. Joe Frazier? Ah, no. I'm sorry. You were doing really well. Sonny Liston. 
Sonny Liston, uh, a, uh, a really, um, he didn't fight uh, Joe Frazier, smoking Joe, until a bit later. But uh, a lot of people believe Sonny Liston might have thrown that fight. Who knows? But, um, mm. yes, February 25th, 1964, you did very well. You uh, got up okay. to question seven. I'm going to be on hold. Give um, Elias your information, and we'll give you a consolation prize, all right? Sure. Thanks. Right. Thank you. I uh, mean that uh, that Ali Liston battle that was an even bigger rivalry at the time than Joey Chestnut and Takaro Kobayashi. Someone who I know follows the world of competitive eating very very closely is nationally syndicated radio talk show host and the co-anchor of Fox and Friends. Also happens to be a New York Times best-selling author, Brian Kilmeade. Brian, I hope you had a great Independence Day. I did, and I will tell you this: I I do think one of the greatest upsets that no one expected. That's Cassius Clay beats Sonny Liston, and he beats him in the rematch, and it never quite makes sense to most people because they didn't think that Liston could be knocked out, and he quits on this. He quits on his uh, in his corner. And then kind of lays on the ground in the rematch. Well, a lot of people believe that it was fixed, that Sonny Liston had, you know, owed some money to some unsavory characters and he needed to take a dive in that, uh, in that fight to, to pay them back. Do you subscribe to that theory? Well, put it this way. I don't think Liston knows how to beat Clay. He's never seen anything like it because he was Sugar Ray Robinson, just 60, 70 pounds heavier. And Liston wants to fight people. And when the guy dances and is hard to hit, he gets frustrated. Mm-hmm. I think the best example of that was Duran Leonard rematch. Leonard goes, you know, you might be more of a man than me. I'm just going to beat you in boxing, not fighting. And then Duran throws up his hands and goes, I quit. And it was the biggest disaster of his career, obviously, the no-mas fight. But that's how Liston felt. He's like, I can't hit this guy. And when I hit him, he doesn't go down. So, you, so you, I think you, you there might have been some manipulation, but, but I'll tell you what. He wouldn't have won anyway. And number two is Ali wasn't into it. Ali uh, had knew nothing about it. So he was telling the guy to get up. Right. Well, yeah, no, that's uh, that's true. Uh, that uh, that wouldn't make a lot of sense from his perspective. Hey, um, by the way, what were you? You don't think the Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest was fixed either, right? With another championship for Joey Chestnut, I believe his 15th. I don't think it's a sport. You think it's a sport? Absolutely. Should be in the Olympics. Ugh. <laughs> um, you know, I've met him. Uh, he's a great guy. I appreciate him. If without him, we wouldn't even know what was going on over there. I like the fact that Coney Island gets a little attention. But please, let's not pretend it's a sport. All right, fair, fair enough. I, I guess uh, I, you know, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on that one. Hey, on a much, really? <laughs> yeah. On a much more serious note, Brian, let me ask you about this um, Philadelphia mass shooting. Uh, you have this suspect that's been charged with five counts of murder after opening fire in, um, you know, in a neighborhood that has seen a lot of violence. A lot of folks, both in Philadelphia and around the country, are pointing the figure, the finger directly at Larry Krasner, the the DA there, and other soft on crime DAs around the country, and saying their attitude towards prosecution or lack thereof is emboldening this kind of conduct. How do you view that situation, Brian? Pretty amazing is that I said to myself, you know, I was off, so let me watch what other channels are doing. They cover the whole story and don't mention that the shooter is a cross-dresser, trans man, 
uh, who fancies himself a woman whenever he could. Okay, that's an important part of it, just like the other shooter, Nashville, but we don't bring that up. We still haven't gotten the manifesto there. And then we find out that he's also a Black Lives Matter protester, and he's part of all those riots in Philadelphia. But let's blame the gun when this guy will not lock up any criminals, and they have strict gun laws in Philadelphia already like they have in New York. So when they have strict gun laws and guns and like they do in Chicago and there's too many guns on the streets, they say, well, because it comes by nearby states and they have permi- they were permissive. Well, they had a way of fighting that in New York. That was a stop and frisk. You call with a gun, you go to jail. So and we're able to for a reasonable, a reasonable um, search and seizure. They'll they'll actually pat people down. And guess what? Crime dropped precipitously. Larry Krasner is an embarrassment to America. He's an embarrassment to his city. He should resign if he had a sense of uh, self-awareness. But instead of doing that, he lashes out on Republicans and uh, people that wear gun memorabilia on their collars. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's amazing, other than the fact that he was reelected, is um, the fact that if this story, the suspect here had been, let's say, a Trump supporter, a vocal Trump supporter, as much as he was a vocal Black Lives Matter supporter. Can you imagine how prominently that would be displayed in every headline? Hey, Frank, I'll give you an example. Today, the Walmart shooter, this horrific human being who walked into a Walmart and started shooting people, uh, because according to his his uh, ma- manifesto, which we got right away, mi- mysteriously, he did not like uh, he did not like minorities, and he wanted every all the illegals to leave, and he wanted to shoot Hispanic people. So they led with white supremacist shooter mm. who uh, was in the courtroom today, whose uh, whose rantings talked about the need to get illegal immigrants out of here, who's uh, did not like Hispanics. Okay, why do we not get that same treatment? From the guy in Philadelphia, a Black Lives Matter activist who is a member of the trans community, we don't even get that. We get blame the gun. So I just hope people out there who are apolitical understand you have to do your own vetting when it comes to news. Yeah, that is for sure. And um, it, it goes to show, you know, you almost have to become your own news agency you know you can't really necessarily take what any what anybody says for uh for granted hey um you got to ask you about this hunter biden situation M- increasing numbers of conservatives and others are calling on the uh, federal judge in the hunter biden case to reject this plea deal because they feel that it's it's too lenient a lot of defenders of the deal say, look, for charges like this, it would be unusual for it to even get as far as it is. And they'll point out that uh, the U.S. attorney, Mr. Weiss in Delaware, he says his investigation is still open. Where do you come down on this on this situation as it is now, Brian? Frank, Frank, this is easy. Um, you have to do a full investigation over the course of five years. You don't need five years. You need five weeks. And let's do a full investigation. Nobody thinks they looked into what Hunter was doing overseas. How do you find out how much you owe the IRS if you don't look into the overseas business dealings of an international business person who's functioning illegally as a foreign agent? 
We don't know how much money he made out of Romania, but we know he teamed with Louis Free. We don't know how much money he made out of Burisma because evidently they allowed the statute of limitations to go up on that seven years since he was had his salary. So he got away with not paying his taxes there, which neutralizes his dad's rantings against horrible rich people who don't pay more than he claims 8% of their taxes. And then we don't know what he got out of China. And they were told, don't go there by the assistant attorney general, David White's assistant. We're not allowed to go there. So how do you know how much the guy owes in taxes if you're not allowed to find out how much he earned? So right there, you're not you're incomplete. And of course, it was too lenient when it comes to guns. Of course, he just lied on a form that he's not a drug addict. Lied on a, a, when his dad's getting up there every time he said and says, I want to enhance background checks. Well, the problem is people are uh, criminals and drug addicts like your son have no interest in being honest. They just want to do what they want to do and get what they want to get. So to think that he actually is treated fairly is insane. And for the president to march him around everywhere with him, while denying the baby uh, mama down south in Arkansas, who happens to have his seventh grandchild, who his staff says he wouldn't acknowledge. Think about the series of events. Mm. And what he says is, laughs when people bring it up, gets angry when others bring it up, and then demands his son walk around with him because he's got no job. You know, I don't understand how anybody uh, could not uh, could snub their their own grandchild uh, the way that this is going on there. I mean, even I I try to put myself in in everybody else's shoes. Now, let's say the Biden family believes that the mother of this child is this horrible grifter who uh, rail who uh, somehow fooled Hunter or tricked him. Let's say the worst possible um, uh, motivations that a person can have. How do you hold it against a, a a little girl? like this i just i i just i don't see any possible justification for that at all i mean i the the lengths that they went to to keep this child from being named biden was staggering and the fact that um they don't even acknowledge her existence is uh is quite another matter hey brian whose cocaine was that at the white house hmm i don't know is there anybody with a history of drug use that's there <laughs> just going through the roster right now hmm who could it be? I don't know. Must have been one of those tourists because a lot of people who tour through the White House say to themselves, "Honey, let me leave my drugs outside. I'd love to see what Jeff, where Jefferson walked." Well, you know, um, it's unbelievable that they're actually blaming tourists now. Well, so you don't buy it this. In the, you don't buy it that it was a, a visitor. I don't know. Uh, very rarely do tourists come in and leave it there in their cubbyhole with their fo- with their phones it's like let's go to the secret service with illegal drugs maybe i'll even bring a gun and they'll just leave it in a cubbyhole it's insane so and to see the white house have to dodge this yesterday is hysterical because they would love to say well you know new york post and fox news just keep asking the same questions but now you got everybody asking these questions. You got everybody asking about Hunter. You have people referring to uh, the pres some the president's remarks like "God save the Queen," and now you have people bringing up like, "What does this stuff mean?" Suddenly things are getting a little tight, and then the guy with a history of drug use probably panicked and put it somewhere. But I just think that when you have a son that has a laptop, which we now know is a hundred percent real. Doing 172 miles an hour en route to Vegas to meet a bunch of hookers while doing crack. 
I'm pretty sure it's okay if a journalist asks, could this be your son's? After all, he lives there. So I've never seen anything so ridiculous. When I first saw it, I thought uh, I misheard it. When this starts breaking, the, the cocaine was found at the White House in an area in which um, most tourists don't go through, but they're blaming tourists. It is interesting. You know, some of the Biden issues that you just referenced, and there are many others that you didn't mention, they have led to the lowest approval rating, actually a lower approval rating at this point in his presidency than Jimmy Carter had at this point. And a lot of Democrats are hoping that there'll be another option. At the website Predict It, they're actually betting that Gavin Newsom is more likely to be the next president than Kamala Harris or Ron DeSantis. Do you see at this point, with everything he's going through, the legal issues, the issues with his age, the issue with how he's handling certain things, do you see Biden remaining as the Democratic nominee at this point? Can you imagine the drama when all of a sudden there's a press conference and he says, I've talked to Jill, and it turns out I don't make much sense anymore. Uh, I'm going to resign. I mean, I can't. There's no indication this is happening. All it is is speculation, uh, and it's Tudor Dixon coming out and saying Governor Whitmer is, uh, you know, looks like she's getting ready to run maybe with Gavin. So it's people just on the outside. I have not seen anyone on the inside. Why is that? Because Jake Sullivan, Anthony Blinken, all these people are, who are making livings and having be, are people of influence around Biden want him to stay there. And unlike Republicans, believe me, if that was Trump failing, making nonsensical speeches, Don Jr. leaving cocaine in a cubbyhole, Eric walking around with a, a five-year investigation on drug and weapons charges. I mean, if this was a series of things like that, there would be... You're watching it now. You're seeing seven, eight, 12 Republicans running against a GOP, a very popular GOP president. Twelve of them. Do you realize how many Republicans would be in right now as Trump tried for another four years? They'd all be in. I do not understand why they're on the sideline. It makes me think nothing's going to change. And the reason is, one of the main reasons is Kamala Harris. How do you consider yourself a progressive party if you're going to give the Heisman to a female woman of color who's your vice president and says she's next when she has got 32% approval rating on Real Clear. So is Gavin Newsom going to walk up there with his fake teeth and his hair gel and say, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a white male, which, by the way, are terrible people, white males. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I've met them. Uh, and he's going to go out there and he's going to push her aside? So they're stuck. I, I really think they're stuck. I just think it's it, it reminds me of just someone calling sports radio saying the Yankees should just trade Aaron Judge. Well, that that's fine, you know, but it's, they're never going to do it, nor should they. It's just people just ranting. I have not seen any substantive situations where Gavin Newsom's assembling staff. Mm. No, like we heard like about DeSantis. <laughs> yeah. So when you see the machine start up with these people. And, and and very well-known people come to their side. And when you see Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, um, other Democrats stand up and or Leon Panetta said, you know, I'm really concerned about Joe Biden at, at his age. He's my age. And I just I shouldn't be president. I really feel he should rethink it until we see that, Frank. It is just a bunch of people on the sideline saying, how can they do this? 
It's going to be a very interesting year and a half, that's for sure. As Yogi Berra would say, it's uh, it's getting late early. Uh, Brian Kilmeade, catch him on his nationally syndicated radio show. Got one of my favorite guests, uh, Coach Bill Courtney, coming on. Nobody more inspirational than him. And also this uh, Stuart Varney simulcast that I've become a big fan of, uh, among others. Anything happening on Fox and Friends, Brian, that we should keep an eye out for? Oh, yes. Uh, the NFL is spreading uh, flag football to the Bahamas. So we're going to do a little bit of a scrimmage with some Bahamian oh. athletes. You know how the NFL is get, trying to get women involved and has touch football now in high schools across the country, which is genius? Flag football, excuse me. Uh, they're trying to do that now and spread it. That's, that's a pretty smart move. That's going to be wild. Well. Brian Kilmeade. We'll, uh, we'll see you next week, Brian. Thank you. Go get it, Frank. Stay within yourself. <laughs> 15 seconds of fame. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight by Stevie G and the Roasted Tacos, an instant classic if ever there was one. Your opportunity now to be heard for 15 seconds at 800-848-9222 as part of The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Jimmy! Sizzamoron, 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 Sizzamoron. Dennis! Sydney's a moron, Sydney's a moron, Sydney's a moron. Cheech! Bob Grant was correct when he said America's turning into a third world nation. And happy belated birthday to Giuseppe from Vancouver. Rusty! Yeah, you know why Sid's on top? Because he's got balls, not like you. You want to ruin the best part of the program by censoring people. What's wrong with you? Neil! I predict that the Mets will win the World Series before you take your first space trip. <laughs> Raji! If you are a lady and can laugh as loudly and as often on the 5 p.m. Caspadini show, apply without delay. <laughs> uh, that slams the lid on things for today. Back tomorrow, the one and only Cousin Brucey scheduled to be here. And is it Friday already? Wow. Ask Frank anything and more. Frank Morano, good day.